Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated. I'm your host, Tom Sidlogic, and we are thrilled to be back together recording live and in person. I am so excited for how this episode is going to sound. Joining me today is Hobbybox Burns. Heyo. And new friend of the show, Casey the Cairo. Casey, welcome. Tell our listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, well, I know this is a little against the uh the theme of the show, but I, I really like hunting and fishing, which is, I know, <laughs> outdoors activities, but it's something I've been doing for a uh, really, really long time, and, and, and I enjoy it. I also do really like playing board games with friends, though, and uh, I've been a video game enthusiast since I got my first Nintendo Entertainment System as a Christmas present when I was uh, eight years old. Most of my time game playing now is mobile, and... Uh, you can hear about some of the games I'm currently playing on uh, the latest episode of Tom and Joey Unfiltered uh, by subscribing to OIO's Patreon and becoming a $10 supporter. I love you, Casey. I didn't <laughs> even ask you to make that plug. But thank you so much for doing it. Now, Casey, we have a time-honored tradition on Outside is Overrated when someone new comes on this show. And I've been blessed to have new hosts like every episode this year. It's been just wonderful for me. Tell us something nice about me. What do you like about OIO? What inspired you to be one of our $10 supporters on Patreon? Well, uh, something nice about Tom. Uh, Tom is a fantastic father. He's a fantastic husband. And the more and more I get to know his family, his family is also awesome. Uh, Our friendship has grown a whole lot over the last 10 years. Uh, We've known each other since high school. But over the last 10 years or so, uh, with the more frequent board game sessions and pinochle games at hunting camp or being invited on his family fishing trips. Uh, it's really opened in my eyes uh, what a great guy he, he really is. I want to uh, share my very first memory of Casey. We were in a uh, play together. This must have been ninth grade for me, 11th grade for you. Uh, it wasn't Little Women, whatever the spring production was that year. You, uh, I was just walking backstage, minding my own business, walking backstage, and then out of the heavens something comes flinging at me, narrowly misses me, and I hear this just malicious cackle from up on high. <laughs> Casey had ridden the cherry picker all the way up to as high as it would go, and he was just throwing things at innocent passerby beneath them. Yeah, I mean, what can I say? You know, you got to do something to kill your time when you're when you're sitting backstage for three, four hours, not even uh, you know learning your parts and things like that. You got things things to do, and why not climb a cherry picker and throw stuff at people? True. <laughs> and while we're on a drama note, there was also a play where you were sexually attracted to me. That is correct. I think that was Taming of the Shrew, if I recall. Yeah. It and was. A, a yeah. country western version, thanks to uh, Gary, Gary Hirsch and his creativity. But uh, yeah, we had a lot of fun in high school during, during, during productions. I wore a dress. You chased me around a bed. Eventually, I carried you out on the stage and dumped you. And I just remember how heavy you felt to me at that time. <laughs> I'm not saying you were heavy. I probably just wasn't very strong. But those are the memories that I have from our time doing drama together. Do you think you're stronger now? Can you lift him right now? Fuck yeah. (laughs) We play a co-op game. I'll carry you all day, dude. Oh, Oh. doubtful. What do you like about OIO, Casey? I really love the content, and uh, I love that for a year plus now that it's something that I can listen to every month. I don't always relate to the content. Uh, For example, Final Fantasy. I, you know, as as big of a Nintendo kind of geek as I am, I've never played a uh, Final Fantasy game game i've never never gotten into i've watched a whole lot of it but i but i've never actually gotten into it myself but, that's uh that's rough we talk a lot of final fantasy <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah so but you guys are all you know really knowledgeable and passionate about the the subjects and, and it makes it a lot uh, makes it really easy to listen to 
And the last thing I'm going to needle you on is why you're a $10 supporter. You're our newest $10 supporter on Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, uh, the content is really great. And, you know, as a $10 supporter, you not only get to listen to the podcast when it comes out once a month, but you get to listen to the bonus content via Tom and Joey Unfiltered. So uh, I like that, and I like that I'm supporting a friend uh, to do something that he uh, really enjoys. Well, thank you again for your support, and I'm so thrilled to have you on here. I'd also like to thank our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com. A quick reminder, you can follow us all on social. You can email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That is overratedpod with two R's at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TomSidlachikOIO. That's T-O-M. That's the easy part. Sidlachik, S as in Sam, E-D-L-A, C as in cat, E-K-O-I-O as in outside is overrated. That is Twitter and Instagram. You can follow Joey at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter. And you can follow Casey. Would you like to say it? Sure. It's uh at dr underscore casey like at dr underscore casey you can also follow the show at facebook.com slash outside is overrated we have what i think is a kick-ass topic today i'm really excited for this show we are talking all about four stonemeyer games five technically but joey's only the only one of us that has played one of them so we got together for a big board gaming day we played through four of these games together before we get to all that Joey, you just played Charterstone yesterday. You're going to be writing a review for OIO. Uh, Tell us about the game and your initial impressions of it. Yeah, so Charterstone has a lot of similarities to Viticulture for what we'll be talking about here in a little bit. It's a worker placement game, and you start off just basically with two workers, uh, and you start off with only a couple of buildings on the map. And really what it is is it's all about you're going to this area to start a town and to try to basically honor the forever king as best as you possibly can to be the best person in that village that does it so that you win the game. Um, The interesting thing and the different thing about Charterstone is that it is a legacy game. And so what you're doing is you're putting stickers on the map, you're writing on the map, you're writing on cards. If you end up you name all of your different factions. Uh, the person who wins the first game, the other people get to name their charter. Uh, so you get to have a little bit of fun at the winner's expense. Any characters that you unlock in the game, whoever unlocks them gets to name them. And so I have a cleric who is a guest uh, at my inn, whose name is Father Finger. And then yes. I have a architect whose name is Turd Ferguson because he had a mustache very much like Turd Ferguson. And so, yeah, and so there's fun like that. You know, there's, there's, you can, you can be normal with it too. But, and so really what happens is you start off, if you look through the rule book of Charterstone, you can actually see it online. You start off with only a few rules actually in the rule book. And as you play the game, you unlock more and more rules. And like, so, what are some of the rules you unlocked? Uh, so, one of the rules we unlocked was for minions. So, you, Pretty early on in the game, you unlock minions, which are extra workers that you get, but each of the minions does something special. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it right now as to what some of the different ones do. We've unlocked three minions so far, and each one of them has a different aspect of what it adds to the game. And so, because really all you start with is you start with your two workers, your little thing that goes around to show how many victory points you have, and then your 12 influence pieces. And all those influence pieces are used for is to... 
um, show scores in different areas of the board, as well as you have to spend them in order to do some of the actions as you go through it. Um, and they're a finite resource. Once you're out of influence, basically you're marking time until the end of the game. You can still move your workers around, but otherwise you're just kind of moving to the conclusion. You really can't score a lot of victory points after that. But some of the minions unlock ways for you to get influence back. And so the game slowly is evolving. You start with the basics and then you unlock these stickers that you're just adding to the rule book. And I, like I said, I think we started with about seven rules and now we're up to about 15 or 16 different rules that are explaining the minions that we added. Some of the other character types that got added to the game. And so it's really interesting. It's fascinating. So far, we played two games. Last night, uh, the first one took about an hour and a half because of reading through rules and making sure everybody understood what was going on. Uh, but the second game only took about an hour, which the box says it's 60 minutes a game. And so we have about tw 10 more sessions to go. It's 12 sessions to play. And then we will uh, give kind of a complete roundup of what the thoughts are. So playing that with Adam, who we'll talk about in a little bit, my roommate Lance, and then Joe. Adam's actually watching right now on Facebook Live. Oh. Hey, Adam. Hey. hey. That sounds really cool. We look forward to learning more about it. Casey and I haven't played it, so we're going to jump into the next game. We are going to be talking extensively about Wingspan, Viticulture, Tapestry, and Scythe today. We're going to talk about each game individually, and then for Tom Awesome's Top 5, we're going to rank the Top 5 games. That's a little out of order. We're going to rank the games, and then we're going to talk about the last one, but it's going to be a magical journey regardless. <laughs> we're going to start our group discussion with one of the most quirkily-themed board games, and I'm confident enough that quirkily is a real word one of the most quirky games that i am aware of in wingspan you are hatching birds in an effort to outscore your opponents you on your turns you'll purchase bird cards gather food lay eggs and play birds <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, it sounds silly but that's what you're doing it sounds ridiculous <laughs> Each round of play has a bonus objective, like having so many eggs on a specific type of bird nest, or having so many birds in one of the three distinct habitats. Each player also has secret objectives, like playing birds named after people, or birds of prey, or collecting so many bird cards, something to that effect. Casey, Joy, and I have each played this game before. Let's start with our initial reactions to seeing the games and digesting those rules for the first time. My initial reaction, which I'm sure is similar to most people that play this game for the first time is birds. Like, I mean, <laughs> are you kidding me? Like we're playing a game about birds, but you know, as I mentioned before, you know, I kind of like the outdoors. So it, it, it sort of worked for me. It was intriguing. You know, the rules for me as a first timer, you know, just, it were a little fuzzy at first, but after the first round or two, it was, it was really easy to grasp. The, the game I thought was really detailed. Um, you know, the cards are really high quality. Images on the birds were, were really detailed. The descriptions. And then, like, right in the middle of the boards is big old birdhouse bird feeder, which, you know, just seemed like a really, <laughs> really cool touch to the game. I don't know. It, it, uh, I, I liked it a lot. I think it was, it was great. The birdhouse is a pretty neat thing. It's, uh, it's basically a house for the dice. You roll yep. six-sided dice that have the different types of food for the birds on it. And when you're down to one type of food left, you pick up all the dice and you re-roll them in the birdhouse. Yeah, your birdhouse dice tower. It's it's just think if you wield that out for a D and D game, like just how like menacing that would be to anybody, right? <laughs> yeah. 
How else are you going to summon your army of bloodthirsty doves? Exactly. And I guess we never followed up with Pat to see how disappointed he was that we didn't have any bloodthirsty doves that really did anything in that game, but maybe the next one, right? Well, he did start, his first bird was a bird of prey, and he was pissed off that none of us ever used uh, like a bird of prey, so he never got to use its bonus ability. That's true. Uh, so I like the theme of wingspan uh, because I think it's interesting for more casual players to become to, to draw them into playing a game that's complicated like it is. Uh, and, and for it being complicated, it does a really good job of leading you through how it all goes together and how the things fit together. Uh, one of the really interesting things which we didn't play with, but that I did play with my family when they played it the first time, was there is a starter set where each person starts with you know, around the game, one person has to be the first player and it tells that person what to do. You buy this bird, you take this bird, you get this food from the feeder. And so it tells you which birds to start with, what to do. And it gives you sort of this, this hand holding through the first couple of rounds of the game so that you get a better idea of how everything flows together. And it, it builds in some of those connections of if you have this bird and this bird next to it, you get to do these things when you collect food. So it kind of gives you those aha moments and then leads you to then making your own decisions after that. And I played with my mom who loves birds. And so it was a hit with her and my sister and her two kids who were 13 and 10. And all of them really enjoyed the game, which I thought was fascinating because I didn't expect even the, the younger ones, especially uh, Hunter, who is 13 and basically just plays video games all the time. I didn't expect him to really get into something like that, but he loved it. Um, and my sister bought it like at the end of the game. She went on Amazon and picked it up uh, because she thought it was that interesting. It was a good game for them to play as a group. So I, I think that's I think it's interesting and that helps to make it more accessible. That starter game is such a clever idea because one of the things that I've noticed with Stonemaier games is it can be a lot to visually process at first. Just like the sheer amount of options, like some of his core design tenets are having a lot of options and minimizing randomness and uh, building on previous turns. And I think just that gateway for a casual player as well as a non-menacing theme for the game I think is just so, so clever. Well, the, and the other thing that's really clever about Wingspan is how the abilities that each of the birds have mimics what those birds are like in real life. And so you have the cowbird, which a cowbird normally lays its eggs in other birds' nests. And that's what the cowbird does. Whenever somebody else lays an egg on their turn, you get to put an egg in another nest. And then you have predators where you draw cards from the from the draw pile. And if one of them is small enough, you eat that bird and you tuck it behind there. And that's a victory point. And so it's just really clever how it brings out the personality of each of the individual birds. And they're all different birds. It's like 170 some different birds all within there, which I think is fascinating. They've already released one expansion of birds from Europe. some other Europe. And then there's another one of birds of Oceania coming out. And so it's just, it's, it's fascinating. And I don't know, it's probably just a way for them to print money <laughs> moving forward. We only got to play it one time. Let's talk a little bit about the strategies that we used and how they worked out in the game. My original secret objective was to play birds named after people. And one of the things they do on the secret objective cards is they'll tell you what percentage of cards would tie to that objective. There was an 11% chance that I would find, or 11% of the cards were birds named after people. That didn't work out so well for me. <laughs> Those cards just never really came up. Later, I ended up drawing another couple of secret objective cards, and uh, the one that got me the most victory points was having 
more bird cards in my hand. So I started just hoarding bird cards. Which is nice. You know, I mean, that, that, that's 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 a fairly easily easy one to pick up. Uh, the secret objective card I had was to collect birds and play them out that are under thir- 30 it's not centimeters. centimeters. I, I put centimeters, but I don't think it's actually. Is I think it centimeters? centimeters. Yeah. Yeah. So I had to, I had to collect small birds, and I, I was a, I was lucky to get quite a few of them early on, and then it was really just picking up a couple as it got to the end because usually the threshold is you get some points if you get four to five of them, and then you get more points if you get six or more of that size of bird, uh, and so that was my secret objective. Otherwise. My whole strategy was to try to maximize gaining a few points with each of the round objectives as best as possible. I was never able to maximize all of them, but I tried to get at least two to three points each round with the different objectives. Like I think the first one was have birds in the forest. The second one was to have eggs in certain types, a certain type of nest. I think it was like the bull nests. So I tried to have at least a couple of those in there to to maximize as much as I could what I could do with that. And then... So I sort of focused on building out one habitat at a time. So I started with the forest and then I went to the field biome and got a couple of birds in there. And then I focused at the end a little bit on trying to get water birds out there. My initial strategy also revolved basically around my initial secret objective. uh, And mine was at the end of the game, I had to count the number of eggs that I had on my birds. So if I had just one egg on on each bird and then like joey said before like if i had under four i would get so many points but if i had more than more than five i would get even more so um so that was my focus is initially was to try to get birds basically that i could continuously stack eggs on and then redistribute them at a later point in time which happened to work out really well because i had a sparrow which you could stack like six or seven eggs on top of <laughs> and then it also worked really well because he uh, had a special ability where if he was to the right of any other bird in the habitat i could then move it to another habitat at the end of the turn which helped me for amassing a whole bunch of food which kind of also came into my <laughs> my other strategy uh eventually too which was basically just hoarding food and um using that to buy birds that then also could lay eggs and uh yeah, that's that, that was my initial strategy. That was so frustrating, dude. <laughs> Your stupid sparrow. Like, you'd move it up to the gather food area, and then you go and you clean out the whole bird feeder, and, like, always that turn there was something I needed in the bird feeder. There was always the food that I needed, and then you'd clear it all out, and so we'd have to re-roll, and then it'd be a bunch of, like, wheat and cherries. I'm like, I don't need that yeah. shit. Yeah. Well, and, and so then he was doing it, and I was doing something similar because I also had a bird that was bouncing between biomes, and once I finally buried that behind another bird, because the whole mechanic is, is once you get a bird past them, they can't move anymore. Uh, I ended up getting another one. And so especially early on, since I focused on the forest, I was getting a lot of food at a time as well. And I think we just had Pat sitting in between us and it, it would, it would stink if Pat never grabbed food because then there would maybe be like nothing left in the bird feeder for me to grab. Like I was going to get like four dice out of it. And then there's only two there. So I was like, ah, crap. Uh, but that only happened a couple of times. But uh, yeah, I, uh, that those types of birds can be pretty pretty nice to have. Uh, the good thing is, is there's usually a, a a few different types of birds that can do something similar to that, which can also be helpful with getting points uh, for at the end of the game. I wound up finishing third in this game, but I never really felt like I was in it. Like I could never get the food for my birds. I never got the stupid named birds. So I mean, my strategy just. 
didn't work out. I never really felt like a serious contender. I think you guys tied for the win with 67 points, and yep. I was third with 62, and then Pat fell way behind because Pat sucks at birds. <laughs> <laughs> so I think my process of focusing on like a biome at a time worked somewhat well. It got to the it got to a point though where I needed to be drawing more birds and I didn't have any down in the water habitat, uh, which which hamstrung me a little bit, which I wish I would have had a little bit more of an ability to get a couple of birds at a time so that I could discard cards to get other ones or or just sort of keep trying to find those 30 centimeter birds. Uh, but otherwise, I don't know, I beat you, so that's all that matters. Casey, how'd you feel about your strategy and how it paid off? Yeah, I thought it worked I mean it worked surprisingly well. Um I think Kind of back to what I was doing, like the other thing that really helped me is I had a, a different bird that I had camped in the, uh, I forget what the biome was, but it's a very, very top one, the brown one. So like, as I moved my sparrow up to it, then that bird, when it was activated, uh, you actually were able to repeat the power. So again, that helped me amass food. And then the sparrow with the stacking of the eggs and everything, I didn't have to repeatedly go back to that egg biome, the laying egg biome to get it. So... I was able to, at the end, focus on my second objective, uh, um, and, and I was able to amass a bunch of birds that just had, it was, count the number of birds you play that have the specific nest symbol shown on the card. And it was just like your basic nest, but um, it just happened to kind of get lucky with, with the with the birds that were coming up, where I was able to, to buy a whole bunch of those, so I was able to hit both uh, my object- objectives for the max points. And then uh, the last round, I almost then exclusively focused on on fulfilling those objectives and buying eggs to stack on all those these other birds so yeah i got pretty lucky um with the end of round goals overlapping basically with the exact same thing that my objectives were so in the end i just ended up getting a whole lot of points so it worked out for you so what are our impressions of wingspan i mean i can kick it off i really like this game i have always always struggled with the theme birds man (laughs) birds what if this was a fantasy game what if i was recruiting like wizards and trolls and stuff like that would be awesome birds it'd be awesome but it probably wouldn't do as well like the 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 fact that it's this some this thing that everybody knows about it's instantly accessible to a lot of people and the people that would maybe balk at it so the people around this table would be like a bird game seriously we know enough about board games that we're willing to at least give it a shot and fall in love with it. Whereas the people that are like, I love birds, uh, they'll play it. They'll like it too. And and so I think that's a lot of what has made it. That That's a lot of the reason why it deservedly won game of the year last year across like pretty much all the awards that were given out. You know, it's a vastly underrated game. Hmm. Tokaido. <laughs> Tokaido is great. Tokaido is a very fun game. Did you play that with us? I did not. I've never played Takedo. No. Anybody who doesn't like it, like, just needs to get their head adjusted a little bit. It's just a nice stroll through Japan, stopping at hot springs, buying some things. Not every game is about chucking dice and killing people. Sometimes it's okay to have a change of pace. Sometimes it's okay to, like, buy some sushi. Yeah. You know? (laughs) Just sort of go to the shrine, you know? Just chill. Yeah, see the sights, like take a picture. Get a nice diorama, you know, collect yeah. all those images. This guy gets it. I, I pointed at myself. I meant to point at Joey, but like, I'm playing with a rubber band with this hand. So, you know. Anyways, Casey, what were your impressions of Wingspan? I, I love the game. Um, and this is the first Stone... No, not the first Stonemire game you'd played because you, we'd played Tapestry before, but this was the second Stonemire game. He's played Scythe. Scythe before. Yep. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> my point. 
<laughs> Proceed. Yeah, no, I, 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 yeah, I really, really love the game. You know, I'd say I wasn't sure about the bird theme, but at the end, I was like, I honestly couldn't see it any other way. You know, like I, I think you're, you're right. You could probably do it with, you know, mages, trolls, whatever the heck you wanted to do. A fan, more of a fantasy theme, but. You know, the bird theme and, and just the way that it was structured worked out really, really well. I think, Joey, to his point, yeah, yeah, it does get more people who maybe wouldn't be so into games into, you know, just that sort of a theme where maybe they don't dig the fantasy theme and want something a little bit more rela- relatable to them. So I, I really liked it. I thought it worked out. Definitely play it again. And anyone that enjoys that engine building style of a game would, would I think, really, really like it. It's a good game. I also, I have exciting news, and I forgot to mention it at the top of the show. <laughs> we are actually going to have an interview with Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games. He is the last half of the name of the game company uh, at the end of the show. So stick around after we talk about the games for an exclusive interview with Jamie Stegmeyer. Super exciting. And for those Yay. people watching on Facebook Live, like that's not actually happening now. Yeah, no, you'll have to download OIO. <laughs> <laughs> Available on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe and leave a nice review. Anyways, any closing <laughs> thoughts on Wingspan, guys? I got nothing. Um, other than, like I said, I loved it. I recommend it to anybody. Yeah, I, like like Casey was saying, even if it seems stupid or seems dumb, like I think everybody should at least give it a shot. Because uh, I, I think everybody would find some enjoyment in it. And I, I think it's also a really good game. It's kind of like a gateway game. So if you play this with people, this could open the door for playing something a little bit heavier like Tapestry or a little bit heavier like blanking on any pandemic or something like that. Although that's a pretty good gateway game, too. But I think this is something that can draw people into the strategy and really get interested in games like this. Agreed. We will see where I rank it in Tom Awesome's top five. That's a teaser, folks. That is. Yeah. He's he's learning. (laughs) Hey, lovers out there, grab your D20s because it's time for Tom Awesome's Charisma Check. Let's get it on. Let's get it on. Welcome to Charisma Check, a new segment where we will be evaluating how sexy a particular gaming topic is. Today, we are evaluating next-gen gaming. Both Xbox and PlayStation have recently revealed their next-gen titles and console designs. Let's start with aesthetics. What do we think about the looks of the new consoles, Joey? Been a lot of conversations about both of these. So the the Series X, the Xbox Series X came was announced or was shown at the Game Awards in December. And they did a really good job of making it look cool in the video when they released it. But then after the fact, you just see it. It really is just this sort of rectangular cube with, you know, a green vent on top that looks kind of cool and is lighted. The, the really funny thing is when they gave more information about the Xbox Series X, they, they were doing a Zoom video, and one of the guys had his refrigerator in the background, and he had made that into a Series X, <laughs> and it just looked so doopy. It was, it was really funny. I mean, you know, the guy works for Microsoft. He's a big Xbox fan, so you're going to do that. But I think the favorite comment I've heard about the design of the Series 1X is that it looks like a villain's lair. That's my friend Brian who relayed that little gem. I can, I can see that. Now, I've seen the, the refrigerator image too, and it looks just like a refrigerator. <laughs> you know what else it looks like? It looks like a computer tower, which if I'm going to go out and spend a whole lot of money on, on a gaming system... 
that looks like that, I might as well just buy a high-end computer because they're, to me, basically the exact same thing. You're going to be getting most of the same titles, so Microsoft better do something to convince me that I need to buy an Xbox Series X because right now I think I would just opt for a really kick-ass computer. Xbox Game Pass. You can get that on PC? Game Pass. It doesn't have everything on PC. (laughs) Uh, The PS5, on the other hand, is a very different-looking game console. There's not a game console that looks like that. Sure, there might be some other electronics devices that look like it. What springs to mind, Burns? Um, You know, I didn't want to steal anybody's thunder, but it does kind of look like a wireless router. That's what I thought, too. It's like <laughs> a router where the shit's peeling off the side. <laughs> I, think, I think it looks cool. And they revealed the DualSense controller which looks very different from what the DualShock 4 is. And if you're you know, looking at PlayStation, all of the controllers have basically been the same controller with a little bit of modifications here. Which is fine. I like the controller. Yeah. The DualSense, though, looked sleeker. It was a little bit more rounded, kind of like the Xbox controllers are. Uh, but then it had that two-tone color. It had the white and black with blue on it. And so when you look at that controller and you think, okay, I'm going to make a console that looks like this, I mean, that's the PlayStation 5. It looks a lot like that. I think it looks cool. It's neat. Their whole thing is that they're pushing. This is a different step in gaming. This is taking things to the next level. And so it makes sense that you would design something that looks very different from the old, you know, just sort of black rectangular consoles. Next step in gaming. Taping gaming to the next level. Better graphics. Yeah. Fine, faster loads. It's still gaming. It's still a console. <laughs> You're still using your controller. Like it's not revolutionary. It doesn't come with a haptic suit. Like it's not Ready Player One here. Yet. Yet. <laughs> I think it looks cool. Tom, what do you think? I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't care for white consoles and it just looks like weird to me. Like I like video game consoles that look like video game consoles. Like I mean the PS4 is like a big black box and that's kinda what I want out of my consoles. It's gonna be one of those things where they're going to eventually have skins and stuff where I'm sure where oh, you're sure. probably not going to have just the white console. But I compared to the Xbox Series X, I think the PlayStation 4, to me, looks a lot better. It's not going to make me want to buy it, but it looks a lot better. Yeah, that's a neater thing. Great. <laughs> <laughs> so there's also a whole bunch of video games that they revealed that are coming to next-gen titles. I thought it would be interesting to talk about the ones that stood out to us the most. Casey, you're not planning on buying one of these consoles, so what stood out to you? <laughs> um, you know, I, I looked at the titles, and I watched some of the gameplay trailers and things like that, and you know, nothing really does anything for, for me all that much. Um, of, the, of all of them, I thought Destiny 2 looked pretty amazing. Um, Bernsey, your thoughts on Destiny 2? Destiny is terrible. <laughs> Destiny 2 I will never give a shot because Destiny was terrible. Original base game Destiny sucked, but they made it pretty good, I heard. Yeah, you know, pay us $60. This game's shit. We're not going to tell you that until you get 10 hours in and you realize you're playing the same thing over and over and over again. Whoa, 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 (laughs) whoa. This is coming from the guy who, if I recall, I don't even know what what podcast it was, but plays... And, and I can't even think of the stupid name of the game. But Full the motion game, video games, the Quiet Man. No, the one the where you're carrying around too. boxes nonstop. Death Stranding. Death Stranding! <laughs> <laughs> so a guy is Destiny because you're doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, but loves Death Stranding, <laughs> where you're literally carrying boxes to nowhere over and over and over and over and over and over again. 
there's 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 other mechanics to it. You're you're being very reductive here. Whereas Destiny, it's like I'm gonna. Sh- I mean, and the gameplay of Destiny is really good. The shooting mechanics, like the guns, yes. are satisfying. Yeah, there there was there were some positives out of the box, but it's like. I'm just I'm walking through the same areas over and over just to get to this one thing, do that thing for five minutes and then walk back. I know things have gotten better. I'm sorry. They shat on my face and I'm not going to let it happen again. Fair enough. For me, there's only one title that really stands out and it isn't even an exclusive title. Assassin's Creed Valhalla looks awesome. I haven't played an AC game since AC2. I've been collecting them. I own, I think, everyone but three. Okay. Yeah, I own a lot of Assassin's Creed, and they're all just so like big that I'm just like, oh god, do I really have the time to commit to beating these games like Assassin's Creed Odyssey? I want to play that game very badly, but hundred plus hours, no, just not happening right now. Yeah, the, the the length of those games gets a little rough. Um, I've been playing Origins as we've talked about before, and that's that's a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to at some point playing Odyssey. I do have it. I bought it on like Super Sale. Ubisoft, Ubisoft will sell stuff for like 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 a box of Cracker Jacks price, and it's like okay, I'll buy a hundred plus hour game for that. Of course, I like yeah. Assassin's Creed, but really that didn't like seeing the reveal of that. I don't think they did a good job of showing like what that game is actually going to be, which frustrated me a little it's bit. It's going to be AC with Vikings, dude. What more do you need from a video game? <laughs> right, but it's like, I don't know. They, I just wanted something to wow me, and it didn't. And that's the feeling I got from the PlayStation 5 reveal, too, is like nothing jumped out at me. And granted, I, I have never played Ratchet & Clank. I can see some of the things they were doing with that looked really cool, but it still is like I had no connection to Ratchet & Clank to really get me into it. I've played some Horizon. I was interested in Horizon. Couldn't watch that trailer because I was worried about it, like, spoiling anything from the game because I do mean to get back to that at some point. So nothing really jumped out at me. I'm more excited this year for Ghost of Tsushima, which comes out in July. Yeah, that's going to be sweet. And and uh, uh, Star Wars Squadrons, which was announced, which comes out in October for current gen. So I'm oddly still more excited for current gen games than I'm actually excited for stuff next generation. And if I had to pick one game from either of the conferences that showed things so far, it'd be Spider-Man Miles Morales because I think it's really cool. You're going to be playing as a different character. He'll have some different abilities than what Peter Peter Parker had. And The base game was really, really good. Yeah, Spider-Man 2018 was phenomenal. And so, sure, I'll jump through more stuff uh, in a game similar to that and get more storylines. So, yeah, I'm game for that. That'd probably be the one I would... I, I would focus on then. If I have to pick one from their showcases, it's Horizon Zero Dawn sequel subtitle escapes me. Horizon Forbidden West. Yes. Good radio voice. <laughs> that was awesome. Final question in this segment. Do you intend to buy either of these consoles at launch? Casey, I think I already uh, kind of cut the legs off your answer. Yeah, no. Um, uh, <laughs> you know, like, what if your kids I, 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 really I, I, want one, dude? I still would be no. I mean, Caden, my oldest, uh, just got an Xbox One for last Christmas. You know, he plays it, but not to the point where it's anything where I need to jump out there and get him the brand new content because mm-hmm. he, he's really only played one game so far, which is uh, Star Wars uh, Battlefront. Battlefront. Battlefront, yeah, or no, um, no, the Fallen Order. Fallen Order, yeah, and he just beat it the other day. So proud, Papa. Oh, nice. oh that's awesome. Beat me um, to it. <laughs> so, but yeah, and I don't see, honestly, my kids actually, neither one of them has mentioned anything. They're both into gaming. Um, 
they're not going to want it. It's probably going to be priced way more than I want to pay. Mm-hmm. Um, aesthetically, again, we've kind of mentioned they don't really do anything, and the titles so far are not anything that I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to go out and get that. So there's so much other content on past-gen systems that I would rather play now than rush out and get this when it comes out. A very Chargian type response, Burns. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm a Sony fanboy through and through. I I have bought every console, every Sony console at launch, except for the PlayStation Three. I, I'm going to buy a PlayStation Five at launch. If I can interrupt you for just a second, let me read from the Facebook live stream. Dan Burns, you looking good, brother. Tom always sexy, and there's Casey. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully I didn't just ruin the audio feed. That was just a, that was a fun moment. Ah, I'm sure it's good. That's all good. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's it's a nice feeling to sort of feel like you're here, even though you're, you know, not. Yeah. 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 You know? Yeah. Did you finish answering the question? I wasn't paying attention. I was reading Adam's thing. I'm for sure buying a PlayStation five. The moment it's up for pre-order, unless it's like, an insane amount of money, I'll pre-order it. What's your price, like, breakpoint? I mean, if it's $600, again, that's something I have to think about. I'm guessing it's going to be, like, four ninety nine, And so that's reasonable for a system that has the power that this is supposed to have. Um, and when gaming plays such a central theme in our lives. Right, right. Yeah. I, uh, I had leaned towards PlayStation just off of the Sony fanboyness for a long time. I actually have an envelope of cash that I've been squirreling away for for a, a while now but i am right on the precipice like i really hate the design of it i think it looks dumb i'm worried it's gonna be six hundred dollars which is not a price that i appreciate and uh xbox has both game pass and smart delivery and i love xbox game pass xbox game pass is like the greatest deal in gaming it is awesome uh you pay 15 bucks a month or so or you wait for a sale and you buy two and a half years all at once when your friend tips you off nice yeah, work casey you're <laughs> so it's just it's like access to a collection of games all of microsoft first party games a lot of cool indie stuff just uh, a lot of good stuff on there smart delivery is i think the future of gaming mm-hmm. like uh, the, basically the way smart delivery works is if you buy certain xbox titles or certain titles on xbox uh, it'll work on whatever platform you're playing on. If you buy Cyberpunk 2099, 2077. 2077. You Jeez. got it a second time. Ugh. If you buy Cyberpunk 2077, good thing about an audio podcast, I'll just cut that out. Mistake never happened. You're so lucky you're watching this on Facebook Live. <laughs> <laughs> So you buy Cyberpunk 2077 on Xbox One, and then you upgrade to the new console, the game will automatically upscale to the new version. And then if you buy another Xbox console at some point down the road, it'll upscale to the next version. And I think that is really the future of digital video game delivery. Yeah, and so my plan with that is I am actually seriously debating about getting an Xbox One X uh, after the new version launches because... All the games are also that are going to be initially at launch are supposed to be able to be played on your old systems. And so then that's a that's a really good idea. I get Games Pass. I'll get all of the Microsoft exclusive games, which is the main reason I'd want to play an Xbox, you know, system anyway. What? It's not to play Humans Fall Flat? No, you know, you would have to pay me money to play Humans Fall Flat. (laughs) Well, people did that for me. That's a magical feeling. Thank you, guys. So, yeah. So, that, I think that might be what I do. We'll see sort of how much they drop. But I think an Xbox One X at that point should be two ninety nine. 
So maybe it's worth it to get that in games pass, Game Pass and then, you know, have a bunch of different games to play when I want to. Yeah, Game Pass is sweet. So coming back to the theme of this segment, a charisma check on a D20, where would we put our excitement for the next-gen consoles? That's a good question. I would be... Let's go a 13. Last week... I would have probably said 17, 18. Same, samesies. I'm probably, I would actually say 10. Like, I'm just kind of middling right now. I'm happy with where things are at. Uh, you know, Cyberpunk you mentioned also. Like, I'm super pumped to play that later this year. I've got Final Fantasy 14, which is all the game I would ever need probably. So, I don't know. Things are fine. I'm, I'll am i put it at a 10. Yeah, I'm at like, I don't know, 5. <laughs> I mean, I, I've mentioned a lot of the, the, the reasons why I'm not really interested. Um, and until the new content really comes out and then the price drops, uh, you can pretty much count me out and I'll just hopefully pick up some other old gen systems and or, uh, games on the old systems and, and, and have fun on those for a while. I'd like to call attention to another uh, <laughs> comment in the Facebook live feed. <laughs> um, first off, Dunham chimes in that he would have said a twelve. So okay, we're, interesting. We're same same boat, similar yeah. boat. Uh, Jessica Helene, your wife, who I've also been friends with since high school, <laughs> says clearly Casey is a hottie. <laughs> hey, see, I still still got it with the females. What can I say? Yeah, <laughs> she is contractually obligated to say that. Well, not. I mean, she didn't have to, but. <laughs> Next up, we're going to talk about the rough-and-tumble world of Tuscan winemaking. In Viticulture, each player has just inherited a pre-modern vineyard in Tuscany. You have a couple of workers and a dream of owning the most successful vineyard in Tuscany. Had either of you played this game before, and what were your initial impressions of the setup? Uh, I had never played it before. I'd heard a lot about it, read a lot about it, because I've read a lot of like uh, Jamie's blog where he talked about designing it and and everything. So I'd always been interested in it. Um, and I've always thought about maybe picking it up at some point, uh, simply because it also seemed like the type of thing that people that don't play games a lot would be interested in playing. And so I'm really happy that Adam was able to bring it over and we were able to play it. Yeah, I had uh, never heard of it, and I've never played it. Still haven't, technically. Yeah, still. That, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll get into that later. But uh, uh, setup to me was pretty basic. You know, uh, there's a board game, four different seasons. You got a couple workers that you assign to do different tasks. Uh, it should have really been a pretty easy game for me to grasp, but man, did I struggle with this one. <laughs> I had not played this game before. I was not aware of it. I didn't know anything about it until we started prepping for this show. So just to kind of set the table for our listeners a little bit. Each turn is played over the course of four seasons, and you keep repeating those seasons until somebody scores 25 victory points. There are set actions that you can do each season. Like, you'll do things like build structures on your vineyard, plant grapes, welcome visitors into your vineyard, make wine, and deliver contracts. You need to balance income with expenses to do different things. And uh, to dive a little further into, like, the nuts and bolts of the setup, you determine the first player, and then they choose where to go in a turn order, which I think is a really cool mechanic in a game. Like, I like having that flexibility of balancing the reward of going early versus getting the rewards of going later in a turn. Mm -hmm. And the later you go, the more benefits you get. But the later you go, the less options you might have for actions to do out on the game board for that season. 
Yeah, each action and each season... Well, each season, you place workers on the board to accomplish something. And each action, each one of those things you can do, has three spaces on it. And at least one of the spaces has a benefit. So if you go early in the turn order, you can take the action that you want and get a benefit for it. Like, either get some extra money or get an extra visitor or um, get an extra victory point. Whereas if you go later in the turn order, you have a lot less options, but you're getting other benefits for volunteering to go late in the turn. And the last thing I want to mention on the mechanics is if you take the very last slot in the turn order, you are automatically first in the next turn order, and you get an extra worker, and that's a big part of what I did with my strategy. I, on the very first turn, I decided to go last. This is a strategy. I was one turn away from being a contender in this game, Burns. (laughs) (laughs) So my strategy was to alternate between going last and first because when you go last you get that extra worker and then you're guaranteed to go first and you get those bonuses and nobody else was taking that action to go last so not only would i get to go first on the ensuing turn but the turn after that i would take the second spot and the only way you can get the first spot in the turn order is to go last the turn before so i'd basically have two turns where i got the pick of the litter on the different actions available so i'd spend two turns getting bonuses how did you guys approach this game Besides poorly. <laughs> my, my idea was to, to get some grapes planted right away so I could just milk those throughout the rest of the game. And so that was the first thing I wanted to do was to plant grapes and then see what I could make out of it. Now, right away, I was able to get some contract cards. And so how the contracts work is once you have a certain type of wine or set of wines that you can sell, someone will buy that and then you get income from that every Every turn the rest of the game and so my thought was i got a couple of them that were for sparkling wine uh one that was aged at a seven one that was aged at a nine and so i was like okay i have some red grapes and and white grapes which is what you need to get to the sparkling wine so i'm just going to try to fulfill those contracts as fast as possible and then hopefully after that then pick up guests or or whatever in order to try to get some extra points down the line, but have that income to help fuel things later on in the game was sort of the idea I came up with after that first turn. Once I kind of had all my resources in my, in my hand. And what I did to try to gain income was a lot of those bonus spots give you extra money. So like mm-hmm. one of the turns where I was acting first, I would gobble up all those opportunities to get extra money. Whereas you sold one of your three fields and Adam sold one of his three fields for a cash payout right away. Um, it seems like that was a more effective strategy. Hey, Casey, what were you trying to accomplish? Also, um, before you start, uh, Dunham says, a game Casey couldn't break the mechanics, we gotta play it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I had no strategy going into this because the rules, to me, like, I don't know if it was the fact that I hadn't eaten anything for 16 hours before we started playing this or what, but I had a really tough time grasping the initial kind of just what the hell I needed to do. Um, I also had the uh, contract cards like Joey had, and I guess part of my problem initially was that in order to fulfill those contracts, like you said, you have to plant grapes and then you have to harvest them. Well, I spent a whole lot of the initial game trying to get white grapes. And at one point in time, like, I forget the amount of cards that you can actually have at your cap. I think it's seven. And I'm pretty sure I had 12 or 13 yes. cards in my hand. And all of them were god damn red grapes <laughs> so that didn't uh, didn't help at all but yeah like for most of it i just really had no freaking clue what i was doing and once i figured it out which is about halfway through i was so far behind that i just really wanted the game to be over by that point 
Yeah, I remember you kind of going through that. And yes, you did have a ton of cards at one point. Yes. <laughs> and you were openly hostile towards this game. I, I loved it. I mean, we talked a little bit on the last Tom and Joey Unfiltered about the rivalry that we have across various aspects of our lives. And just to see how frustrated you were with this game made it really appealing to me. <laughs> Is that what fueled your enjoyment of the game even more than anything, probably? Yeah, to a large degree. (laughs) (laughs) How do we think our strategies paid off? Casey, you can, I guess, sit this one out. (laughs) Well, I I could start, I guess. I mean, obviously, mine was terrible. Um, You you had some bad luck factor into yours, too. I mean, if you could have gotten the grapes you needed, it's a whole different game. Yeah, and like... Because I, I side note on here, and Adam, not Dunham, our friend, but the other Adam, he was watching before, but... You know, like, it was probably more the fact that I wasn't listening real well. And then, my, again, I, it was 16 hours in without food in my stomach and blah, 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 blah. But he had clearly played this game a whole heck of a lot. He knew what he was doing and sure didn't seem like he was holding back on just trying to dominate everybody from the get-go. Because he had a, had a firm grip and got out to a really early lead. And Joey almost got him in the end. But, yeah, I was... <laughs> I just wanted it to be done. So this was this was the dark souls of winemaking. You need you need to crush those grapes, otherwise they will crush you. I got crushed. <laughs> I uh, I think I did pretty well in this game. Um, I trailed most of the game, but at the end of the where I struggled is I didn't have any damn contracts. I got some good grapes early, and so I had those ready to be harvested, uh, but I didn't get any contracts. And then when I did get contracts, they were really, really expensive contracts. So I hit on them right at the end of the game, so I made a huge jump up the leaderboard towards the end. I feel like so many Stonemire games, there's always just one more turn behind. Like yep. One more cycle, and I think I would have been uh, a real contender. Also, I... Adam, you're an awesome addition to the group. Thank you so much for bringing the game and for your awesome like table topper and the mat that you have. But I think if I had been playing against all first-timers, I think I would have had a legitimate shot to capture this one. Except for I finished second and beat you. <laughs> <laughs> I was this close, Burns. Where, where I struggled is I didn't get enough workers activated. I guess after my initial playthrough on Scythe, like, I'm always a little hesitant to fire up all those workers. <laughs> So I just didn't have enough activations per turn to maximize my... Though I think I was the only one that didn't actually have all my workers at the end of the game, right? I was one person short. I think you were, and I think I'd gotten mine the turn before, so yeah. I realized too late that that should have been a priority. Yeah, I, I, I should have. I should have gotten another worker. The thing that really hamstrung me, though, was I needed to get some more grapes uh, in order to fulfill some of the contracts I got later on in the game, and I think that would have been enough to at least get me within striking range a little bit closer. I think I lost by about three points. It was I think close. I would have been right on top of like that top score that Adam scored. So if I would have, if I would have gotten a few more grapes by the time I realized I needed those and I wasn't going to be able to make do with what I had in my reserves, it was too late. And so then it was just, well, let's see if I can get some of these guys or build a building to get me some victory points, but it just wasn't enough. So what are our overall impressions on the game? Casey, you're on a roll. (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, call me a glutton for punishment, but honestly, I'd play it again. You know, the the, the theme to me, like, I hate wine. I don't drink it. Um, So the the theme really doesn't interest me at all, but it was still, like, all Stonemaier games. There's just something that kind of pulls you back to it where getting crushed just makes me want to play it again even more so I can try to do better the next time now that I have a better grasp of the rules I feel like I would hopefully do better 
Plus, you'd watch like a thousand hours of online videos and read everything ever written about the game, and you'd find every angle and nook yep. and crav- crevice, and you would just dominate. Yeah, you're true, probably. <laughs> Your viticulture binder would be yep. so impressive. Yep. All the different types of grapes. He's just like, Syrah, Merlot, yes. <laughs> Fold out the charts. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I was going to say really enjoyed it also, but <laughs> I, I like games that have a wide variety of options for you to be able to do, but nowhere near enough like activations to do the things. And, and so like taking that initiative to be like, okay, I'm just going to try this path and see where it gets me. And then I'll at least know moving forward like what to try next time. Like I really enjoy games that do that. And, and I guess that's what a lot of Stonemeyer games do. And so I think that's why, and a lot of worker placement games do that too. I don't, I really enjoyed it. I think, like I was saying before, this would be something that I could get some of my friends to play that maybe aren't always as eager to play board games, but are interested in like wine. And so that'll connect them enough to it to want to learn a little bit more about it. But I can understand that that's not for everybody either. So... A couple of pro tips. Adam says the first rule to worker placement games, get all your workers. I actually found that really interesting, though, that you did so well. It finished really close without getting all your workers, and you actually sold one of your fields, which to me, like, at the end of the game, I was like, holy crap. Because, like, I was one of the only ones, I think, Tom, you had all three of your fields too, right? So you and I were the only ones that had all three of our fields. And I think, like, I mean, you and Adam both sold a field. and Yeah. That extra bit of cash when I did it was necessary because I was able to get some of the things that I needed to do to get my contract fulfilled. And so that was the big thing was I needed to do that in order to get that to that next step. And I knew I wasn't going to be able to plant that many grapes. I was only using one of my three fields. And so it made sense to get the free cash. Yep. We're getting all kinds of live feedback during the show. (laughs) Pat texts, Casey is a power gamer. Imagine if he had gotten into WoW. (laughs) Oh, man, I would be dead probably. (laughs) I'd be that kid, like, sitting at his computer with, like, I don't know, like, just starve myself to death because I couldn't break away, probably. I, I, you, I, some might say I have a kind of addictive personality when it comes to that, and I just want to dominate the shit out of every game that I play. Just think you and Dan could have gotten an apartment together. <laughs> order a pizza, put it right down in between the two of you, each with one hand on the mouse, one hand on your crotch. Thank you for that visual, Tom. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought we got a pizza, not hot dogs. <laughs> I like this game, too. <laughs> I view it as another palate cleanser type game, although something like Tokaido is, feels like a quicker run, and mm-hmm. palate cleansers are often something you can get through a little bit quicker. This is a bit more of a time commitment. Uh, but I agree that it's also a great title for people who aren't like core gamers or aren't super into games where you throw dice and kill people. Like I think my wife might enjoy this, and... Oh, really cool game, and I just I never, I never would have thought to check it out just because of the theme alone. Like, let's go make some wine. Yeah, <laughs> we are men, men of wine. So we would say that Casey, if we're using like the wine metaphors, he was the grape lady from the 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 news drop where she slips and falls, and it's. Uh, uh. I, I've seen that. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that that's probably a very accurate description of me during this game. But hey, your next game might be like that Tosh.0 Redemption. Web Redemption. That's Casey right. dominates it at uh, Viticulture. I'm going to get all the grapes and smash them and 
fulfill all my contracts. The Grapes of Casey's Wrath by John <laughs> Steinbeck. Well, just we won't invite Casey to the next board. <laughs> Corey, you're up, dude. <laughs> so, guys, a friend of a friend rolled an ATV down a hill this last weekend, and and he's in quite a bit of pain after the fact. Nothing seems to be broken or anything like that, but he's in some serious pain. Do you know anyone who can help? I'm sorry to hear that, Joey, and I hope your friend is doing okay. You should tell them about Premier Health. Premier Health has solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident and work injuries, ATV accidents, and more. We suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. Learn more at PremierHealthMN.com. That's PremierHealthMN.com. So one of the uh, great things about having a show with Patreon support is I get to do fun segments like things like Game Pass Forever. And I had the brilliant idea this year when uh, I reached the threshold where you laugh. I can't believe you do this to me. You're my friend, dude. That's what friends are for. Yeah, so I had this brilliant idea earlier this year to use a Microsoft randomizer to pick the game because, you know, I can pick titles that interest me, but I thought the randomizer would be interesting and fun. Uh, turns out it's not. <laughs> And I'm not, I use the randomizer on PC because I don't see a randomizer on the actual Xbox. So I don't even know if it like selects Xbox games. It probably doesn't. No, it could just be what's available for PC. Also, I think it's a strong predilection towards the less popular games yeah. on Game Pass. Yeah. Uh, surfacing some less popular things. Um, so that's how I wound up playing Humans Fall Flat this month. And granted, there's still two weeks left in the month and I've only put a couple of hours into this game. Uh, in Humans Fall Flat, you take a little clay dummy through a series of environments solving puzzles. To put it bluntly, I did not like this game. <laughs> <laughs> the basic movement was very slow and lumpy. Like, your dude is just like, Ugh, uh, this is going to play great in audio. It's like Drunken Gumby. It, it, yeah. It's exactly like Drunken Gumby. Climbing things required multiple inputs. So you hold down both triggers to stick out your arms. You move forward with the left stick. You jump with A. You press up on the right stick to move your arms up. That's and stranding. Then... <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> and then you close by pushing down on the right stick, which will push you up, and you have to time your release so that the dude actually climbs up on the thing, dude or lady or whatever your little clay person is. There is some satisfaction in solving the puzzles. Like you put a crate on a button to hold it down, and you run through the door. Yay! <laughs> Couch co-op is generally an attractive feature for me, but playing this with Phoenix, like it's like there's only one solution to the puzzle. Really, only one of us can be doing something. Like she can be over pulling on this bench while I move the train car over here. <laughs> the one thing that I did enjoy about this game was respawning. Like all the edges are cliffs, and so like you get frustrated and like, this game, and you just jump off the cliff <laughs> <laughs> and you just fall, 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 splat, you land right back in the room again. Oh, nice. Kind of a neat little thing. But overall, this uh. Boy, this was not my game at all. Yeah, um, my kids actually play this game, so I was pretty familiar with it before you had gotten into it, so I was interested to see what you wanted to say. Uh, interested to hear what you were going to say, I should say. It really doesn't do anything for me either. Like, watching them, I think it looks stupid, and I've watched <laughs> some videos online, and it makes it look even more stupid. I'll say that I never figured out how to customize my little person, so it was just a little, like, clay ragdoll duder running around and i saw some pretty cool designs watching videos online so that was neat i think i would enjoy the puzzle solving aspect of it too i've played a few games like that before in the past but like it, where it 
I would hate it. It's like you said, the controls are just so wonky that, that I mean, that oh would frustrate God. the hell out of it me. It sucks. It's like if I push forward, I want my dude to move forward, preferably in a efficient manner. Not like a drunken GTA character. No, no. <laughs> I, it just drove me crazy. I got it into drives like, me crazy. I think that's everyone's favorite part of the show when Burns starts singing. We got there. <laughs> Thank you to our Patreon supporters for giving me this opportunity, but boy, I do not care for that game. Anytime, Tom. Anytime. Yeah, this was before Casey was a supporter, so you didn't get to have a say in that vote. I'm not sure what the next Game Pass game is because we are recording on the 16th of the month, and I just threw it out to the Patreons last night. I asked for freedom to pick a good game, an interesting game, any other game than the randomizer. I guess you guys are both supporters. What are your thoughts on? Well, I already voted, and I am a benevolent god, Tom. I said that at least for this next month that you should be given the freedom to choose what you and Phoenix want to play. And then I recommended that you should maybe try Yakuza 0 at some point in the future, because I believe that is on Game Pass also. Yeah, I didn't realize it, but I checked last night, and yes, yes it is. I I know Kiwami is, and I know another one is. I can't remember if it's 0 or Kiwami 2. Gotcha. Yeah, I would would try one of those games at some point. You don't have to do it this next month or anything like that. Sometime in the future, because if you like the wall market stuff for Final Fantasy VII Remake, I think you would get into the gist of what Yakuza is. I think as much fun as it is to watch you hate stuff and torture yourself <laughs> playing through games um i feel like you know it's been two months straight of games that you legitimately hated playing well riverbond was actually pretty fun oh, that's River, right. yeah, that's riverbond right. had its moments that's like i right. went in i expected to hate it and riverbond uh it was like a kid's diablo hack and slash style game they were it was enjoyable enough yeah i thought maybe it'd be the same thing with humans fall flat but oh man it fell flat for me is minecraft dungeons on game pass yes because that would be something to maybe try, and it's newer too, so that could yeah. be maybe something. And you guys should be able to play together, I think, Coach Co-op. I guess I'm not sure. I know it's multiplayer, but... Yeah, I'm pretty sure you can play Coach Co-op. I'm a little scared of that game just because uh, hearing Church and Reiner talk about it on Video Games Weekly on KFan, like, they killed that game. Oh, did they? Yeah. So that, also, it's their recommendation of Children of Morta that Phoenix and I want to oh, play well, next. Oh, there you go, too. We'll see how the month works out. If you want to cast your vote... Why don't you become a supporter of OIO on Patreon? It's patreon.com slash OIO and commitments start at just $2 a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash OIO. Yeah, you know, $2 bills are almost a thing of the past. We found out over the weekend that they're not completely a thing of the past. But $2, like, it's just $2. The next game on our itinerary was what I think is a very polarizing Stonemaier game. Hey, that's exactly what I said on my show notes, too. I thought that was a great thing off the top of my head. No. No, just the same thought recurring. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that means it's solidified in your head. That's good. Yeah, totally. This is going to be just a bear to edit because I keep going like off script. Anyways, we played Tapestry. (laughs) In this title, up to five players are building their civilizations from their earliest days through four ages of prosperity. Each player starts the game by choosing from one of two unique civilizations. You gather resources. You choose to advance down four tracks, technology, military, science, and exploration. At the start of each age, you play a tapestry card that defines that age for you and gives you some kind of boon, like an age of wonder, or you become an oil tycoon, or you have a marriage of the state, or something that defines that era for you. You can go out and explore and conquer new territory, build out your capital city with income buildings and landmarks, and research and advance technology. This is probably 
well, not probably, this is the Stonemaier game that I've played the most, and it's one that I really enjoy. What are your guys' thoughts leading up to the game? Well, I, I guess we're going strategy. Like, I, This is also the t- uh, Stonemaier game that I've played the most as well. I think this is probably my, it's either my fifth or sixth time playing it. Pretty sure every single time I've played, the person that has taken the tech track or at least made the tech track a big part of their their end game has has won. So and that was my whole strategy was pound that track tech track. Yeah, that was that was mine too. And we were racing. Fortunately, I got to go before you in this game, so kind of our wingspan frustrations were reversed. So like I was getting all the benefits just one step ahead of you. Yep. <laughs> and ironically, I somehow ended up beating you, but mostly because I ended up lucking out and getting a few more tech cards, which ended up getting me the bonus victory points towards the end and every single time that it, during the income phase. Joey, what was your strategy this playthrough? Yeah, so I have also played it quite a few times. Uh, I picked it up right as it launched uh, and have played games of uh, five players to... I've played quite a few games, actually, at the two-player level, too. And uh, this time I wanted to focus on military, and my hand was kind of forced that way because I was the militarists faction. And so at that point it, it was like, okay, I'm just going to try to take over as many territories as I possibly can, uh, because that's what, that's what my civilization is good at. And so my goal was to try to do get all the way to the end of the military track, but also try to get most of the way down the exploration track, because there's a lot of, I mean, you need to open up territories in order to conquer them. And so I figured trying to go down those simultaneously was what I wanted to focus. And I also had hoped to use the science track in order to skip pieces of the tracks that I really didn't want to get any of the benefits on, uh, but just kind of keep progressing, hopefully at a cheaper cost. Um, But I unfortunately ended up abandoning that because of falling behind with some resources at a couple of times. But yeah, that was my general strategy was I wanted to use both military and exploration to try to propel myself down the victory point track. Again, we're talking about tapestry. How did that strategy work out for you, Joey? It worked fairly well, except for, as tends to always happen to me in tapestry, I will get into a period of the game where... I don't have enough resources in order to actually do the secondary benefit on the track that I'm on. And that ended up costing me probably 20 to 30 points this game because I wasn't able to unlock the two, the last two buildings or the last building in each and two of the tracks that I was almost completed. And so one of those would have scored me extra points on all of the spaces that I occupied. And then the other one would have just been 10 victory points when I would have done that. And if I, if I had unlocked those when I should have, if I would have had the resources to do that, I would have had that for the last two income phases that I had in the game. And so that was one kind of key blunder that I missed on that hurt me from being at least somewhat competitive in the game. I think the other thing that I ran into was a problem with was that I just, I, I didn't have tapestry cards that really worked with what my strategy was. And I wasn't taking the opportunity to try to draw more of them um, as much as I probably should have. And so I think that also that also harmed me down near the end of the game. And Casey, we both took very similar strategies. Neither one of us wound up winning. My uh, I read I led briefly in the middle of the game because I had a whole bunch of tech cards and I did an income phase early. That's probably why I led, because I did the income phases first out of all of us and got the bonus points for having lots of tech cards stacked up. 
But overall, I ended up just getting smoked. I, when I got to the end of the tech track, the tech track allows you to start over on another track. So I went to exploration and I tried to balance exploration and military to try to get as many additional victory points as I could. But I just, I was never even in it. Yeah, I think I actually ended up second, which I started at a minus 15 deficit too because of the civilization that, or civilization that I chose. So um, really, I mean, if I wouldn't have done that, it was like 25 behind uh, Adam, who was the eventual winner. Because I got... I just pounded the deck track, and I, I ended up getting lucky with a couple other mechanics in the game that allowed me to get more tech than, than Tom, which is why I finished ahead of him. But it really like didn't really feel close at any point in time for me. It was also partially my fault, too, because I, I either one, once or twice I forgot to take a tapestry card during my income phase, <laughs> which, as Joey just pointed out, are pretty freaking important in a game called Tapestry. <laughs> so... It would have been interesting to see uh, where where I would have finished had I uh, at least drawn one more of those and had uh, that additional kind of bonus to get me farther in the game. It also would have been interesting to see if I was ahead of Tom and actually got the buildings on the tech track yeah. had I been able to to, to overcome that that uh, forty points. So, but yeah, I mean, coming in second, you know, never bad, but second place is the first loser. So <laughs> it sure no is. No fear. <laughs> oh. I like this game a lot. I reviewed it for OutsidersOverrated.com. You can read my full impressions there. I love I love this game, and I'll always be up for another game, but I do think there are serious balance issues. Like, Adam had the Craftsman, and they get a lot of resources, and you need resources just to unlock the different spaces on the different advancement tracks. Uh, my civilization in this game was the Isolationists. Basically, their thing is they don't want to interact with other... Uh, civilization so when they take over a new territory they can place a building on it so nobody can come and conquer it from them which is kind of nice and they get bonus points for having a long chain of the same type of terrain as you're drawing territory tiles in this game there will be mountainous terrain or there will be forests or there will be a whole lot of water and um, <laughs> as you're exploring you can place those tiles down in different ways so in theory you can make a long chain and get a huge stack of bonus points but that doesn't work when you're pounding the tech track like you kind of <laughs> need to be doing exploration and conquest uh, so I was just out of sync from the whole game, and I guess I doomed myself from the beginning. So I'm glad I could be meat for y'all. Well, not me, because I finished second to last. And I do want to apologize to Pat, because I do kind of feel bad for Pat. He had not played the game before, and all of us just jumped in head first and were so eager to like try to make work what we wanted to do that none of us really ever explained the game to him. And I would turn to him, and I'd be like, Pat, you have any questions? He's like, uh, I'll do the science track. <laughs> kind of yeah. like me in Viticulture. Yeah. But it, it also, I mean, it really sucks going last. And he went last as yeah. a new player. He got stuck on the science track, which is completely worthless, I think. I mean, there's like, honestly, like, <laughs> he got all the way to the end of it. And, and the rewards, like, the track itself sucks. But then you get all the way to the end. And, like, your reward for finishing this track is to roll the stupid-ass science dice... And if you get the science one, you get like I, I don't know three victory points or something per roll. I think roll. it's like, five. But, but <laughs> for each time you, you roll you, it, yeah, you have to roll it to get the points. Every other one, you get some sort of automatic benefit, you know, and you and, get some major benefits like yeah. tech track. You get to start over at the beginning of any of the four tracks. Military, you get another civilization, which Joey did, and I want to get your thoughts on that too, Joey. Uh, the exploration track, you get to go to space. You draw super powerful space tiles. And yep. science track, you just rolled a dumb science die and hope you get some victory points. So, and I, 
like this is one of the things I don't think it's I don't think it's worthless. I don't I don't think it's the weakest of the four tracks. I, I mean, I think they're all relatively balanced. I also think you guys give the tech track a bit too much benefit for 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 what it does, really. I think science is important, but you got to use it at the right times because that allows you to move down your other tracks. And eventually after you level science up enough, you get to gain those benefits without having to pay the resources for that track. And so it allows you, granted, you don't necessarily have the choice to do something specific, but as long as you orientate yourself for it, like you can get a lot of good benefits by utilizing the science track at the right time, which I think makes sense. So yeah, I think I could see what your point. Uh, it's just so random, though, because all of it is designed around that science die that you have to roll. So if you roll and you don't get the track that you want to advance on, it's pointless. And like mm-hmm. you said, for the first three turns, you don't get the benefit of moving down that track. So, yes, you advance farther on that track, but you're not getting the benefits of that track until you jump into the next section of that track. But there's a lot of times, though, also where there's – because there's some – areas that depending upon how you're playing are kind of clunkers on different tracks too, where it's like, you know, I, at this point in the game, I don't need to draw more tapestry cards. I don't want to pay to go to this space just to get to the next space. So if I situate myself on a couple of the areas with that, go to the science track and roll ahead on one of those, like that's saving me resources down towards the end of the game. And so it's really about trying to find, I think when to use that to its most, to its biggest benefit but I think that takes a lot of planning, and there's the element of randomness that you can't depend upon it either. Yeah. Um, so so I, I will give you that. And, and I think you, you brought up civilizations, getting the extra civilizations. I had three at the end of the game. I did get a little bit of benefit. The problem is, is so many of the civilizations, it's all about using their ability every turn. And so it just it was really hard once I finally got to the end of the military track. And then I can't remember what it was that triggered the third one, but I had three of them at the end of the game. And I think it was a tapestry card actually that triggered it for me. And it's just one of them. I couldn't use at all. It was just, okay, well I've got this. I'm these guys too. The other one, I was able to get like a couple extra resources out of it, I think, which at that point in the game really didn't matter either. Uh, So I don't know how good that is unless you can get down the military track faster to try to, jump ahead on that hard to do that like it's real hard to get to the end of the tracks early because it takes a lot of resources yes Yes, it does and and i personally don't think i don't think it ever i don't think it pays off to just single-mindedly go down one track it sure didn't for me so yeah I, i think like having a balance between a couple of them and trying to like use the benefits from one to feed off of the other one and a lot of it does come down to what your civilization like uh, power is also and, and then what tapestry cards you get because you can get a tapestry card for an era that gives you benefits to doing something and you need to try to maximize that and if you don't you're just leaving points on the table i i think by far from a difficulty standpoint tapestry is the most difficult game of all of them because there's so many different things that you can do and there's so many synergies between all of the different tracks and then the the tapestry cards your technology cards that you get like every aspect of it plays together and you got to try to kind of perfectly play all of those things together in order to maximize your points i think we all did a really good this is the first time i've had all of us except for one player got over 200 points 
How's it suck to be bad at games, Pat? <laughs> <laughs> That's mean. Blame the science. Blame the science track. <laughs> Blame the science, science is dumb. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I I really enjoy Tapestry. I like the look of it. The one thing we didn't really talk about, but you wrote about it in your review, is like the buildings that you get and all the different shapes and the whole spatial kind of mapping and zoning out your area to try to get more resources by filling up sections of your capital city is really fun and really cool. And so I don't know, it's just a really it's a really aesthetically pleasing game to have on the table. Uh, and, and it's fun to interact with all the elements of it, I think. It's just, it is really difficult to feel like you did your best at it. Yeah, and then it is visually overwhelming at first because there's so much that you can do. Like, we tried to break some things down for Pat, but yeah. I kind of feel like it's a game that you have to get in and you have to mess with it to kind of understand. And unfortunately, if you play with people who have played before and already figured out those mechanics, like, Pat didn't have a chance. Like, yeah. ideally, we would have had time to play two of each game. Yep. But, I mean, we played four games and we played for 14 hours. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Only only so many hours that we can dedicate to gaming in a given week. <laughs> a Tapestry is a really fun game, despite its balance issues. I've never not had fun playing it, and this kind of goes to your polarizing thing, but I honestly don't know if I like it. <laughs> like I said, <laughs> so, I, uh, with playing it five or six times now, and I guess I, you know, like that that one track, I just keep coming back to that. You know, it just seems like it's so much more dominant, and certain civilizations are just so much more powerful than the other ones. So there are definitely some balance issues going into it. But somehow I still have fun doing it, so I can't really knock it. Well, let's uh, talk about where it fits in the hierarchy of Stonemeyer games in Tom Awesome's Top 5 Stonemeyer Games. It's time now for... Tom Awesome's Top 5 Countdown. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1... Here we go. Top five Stonemeyer games. There are more Stonemeyer games, but I haven't played them, and that's why number five for me is Charterstone. It sounds like a very neat game. I haven't played it. I needed five for my top five list. So. <laughs> Sorry, Charterstone. There you go. <laughs> Default. <laughs> After hearing you talk about it, I would have maybe put it at four, but I'm going to stick with my original ratings. At number four, I had Tapestry, which we all like quite a bit. Adam chimes in that it is probably the heaviest there's a lot to like with tapestry but i think the other games i just i like them more number three these top three were very difficult for me but at number three i put vita culture which i think is an awesome game and if i was ranking like top 20 board games that i enjoy it would be somewhere in there but i don't like it as much as the next two okay number two a game we haven't talked about yet but i love it scythe Scythe is a cool-ass game, and I can't wait to dive into it with you guys. And my number one Stonemeyer game is Wingspan. The bird game. The bird game. <laughs> I agree. I, if I'm ranking games, I'm right there with you. Down, down the whole thing. Again, I haven't played Chargerstone, same reason. But yeah, Tapestry I'm putting at the bottom just because of, for me, the balance issue so far. Maybe I need to play it some more, uh, as Adam is, is cluing or <laughs> telling us on Facebook Live that basically we all just suck and need to play it more. Uh, um, and then, yeah, Viticulture, which we've, we've talked about my hate for that so far. But I would play it again. And then, yeah, Scythe I love and, and Wingspan. I had a blast playing Wingspan. I, I So I would flip-flop a couple of them. So I would put 
I haven't played enough Charterstone either. That might rock it up further on the list, depending upon how things continue to progress in it. Uh, Tapestry would be number three for me ahead of Viticulture. Haven't played Viticulture enough. I also... I feel like Tapestry tends to be a different game and there's so many different strategies every time you play it. Whereas Viticulture, I think there's different strategies, but it, it just feels like it would be like playing the same game over and over again. Sure, you um, need some luck with the cards to kind of refresh things a, a little, little bit. A little bit, yeah. And, and I know there's lots of modules that you can build in with the Tuscany expansion. We played with some of them, but not all of them that can add more life to the game. But I think Tapestry and then what they might do with finally more finely tuning some of the civilizations with the FAQs that they continue to put out, but then an expansion, what that can add to tapestry also, I think would be interesting. And then Scythe is number one for me. I love Scythe. I still have not won that game. I've won Wingspan a couple of times now. I still have not won Scythe, but it is, it, it's such a fun game to teach other people to play because everybody always has those aha moments and it's like once you see that click for the people that you're trying to like help them learn the game and you see ah this is what this game is about and instantly like their tactics change and they start like emphasizing a certain thing more and more like i just think that's so cool on a game board to see and it's so cool to see other people like engaging with a game in that way so Scythe is probably in my top one of my top 5 games of all time i really love that game so that would be my number 1 and wingspan 2 I'm going to make a bold statement here. I don't believe I have lost in sight since my aha moment. Like I realized too late in the first game where things went awry. I don't think I played, I think three other times and I know I've won the last two. I think I've won the last three times. No, you, you finished the game. You were the sixth star, but Jake won that one game. That's right. That's right. Yep. And he thought he was doing so awful and then he ended up he ended up once we tallied up all the points he ended up winning i can't remember exactly what happened with that but yeah that that was how that one went but the last two games you have one that we've all played together yeah so there is tom awesome's definitive ranking of the top five stonemeyer games what did we miss where did we go wrong tweet your thoughts or share them on instagram at tom sidlachik oio or email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com or chime in at facebook.com slash outside is overrated and some quick updates from Facebook Live. Corey says, I feel like I'm watching myself on OIO when I can only see the top half of Casey's head. <laughs> we you are two, like twinsies. Yeah, you guys look strikingly similar. <laughs> strikingly. It's almost like they're brothers. Yeah, almost. <laughs> and Dunham chimes in, I love Scythe, but I have to almost relearn it every session. But overall, it's worth it. That would be like torture for me because the first time we played it with our friend adam we started the game at oh, about eleven thirty at night <laughs> and we were probably three hours into it and i definitively remember adam like <laughs> like just sitting there like all right so what does this section do again and this is like three <laughs> hours into it and i just about lost my damn mind so if he's got to relearn it again i don't know if i could put myself through it sorry adam hey who won that game though I think Adam did. Adam won that yeah. game, so that's all that matters. It was the winning strategy. <laughs> he was so pl- slow playing it. Or was- he was so playing it. <laughs> Scythe. It's the final game we're going to talk about, and I would argue that it is the coolest Stonemeyer game. In Scythe, you are building an economic powerhouse in an effort to earn more money than your rivals. You will produce workers, gather resources, upgrade your technology, 
have random encounters in the world, produce mechs, and battle for territory with your rivals. Some things about the, uh, or some core tenets of the game. Each player has a mat for their unique faction and a random player mat, so that player mats get shuffled each time, so each time you play it, you're going to have a slightly different, like, tech tree, basically. Mm -hmm. The resources are going to be a little bit different for doing the different actions. You also have to manage popularity and power. Popularity affects the currency you get for different objectives at the end of the game, so it's super important. And different encounters you have or different things you will do will reduce that popularity. So it's super important to keep pumping it up to make sure you're in the highest threshold for all the endgame objectives. Power, on the other hand, is a meter that goes from 0 to 16, and the further up you get on it, the more power you can spend in combat with your rival. So you can spend up to 7 power points when Mm -hmm. you're having a combat with your rivals um, and then you play combat cards and the higher total basically wins so you can do seven plus your combat card versus your opponent's power plus their combat card and it's like a blind bidding mechanic where you bid how much you want to do and then you reveal it at the same time to see you know who who, who put into it who didn't you know yeah i always put into it <laughs> The game ends when one player completes six objectives. There are maybe ten or so that you can do in a game. They include things like winning a combat, winning a second combat, reaching max power, reaching max popularity, achieving your secret objective, and building all of your structures or building all of your mechs. On your turn, you take one of four actions. You either trade, bolster, move, or produce. And then... Each of those actions has a top action on your player mat and then a lower action on your player mat. And if you have the resources, you can do the second thing. Uh, So that's kind of the nuts and bolts for Scythe. Since I'm the returning champion, let's talk about your guys' strategy before I talk about the winning strategy. Yeah, and and it's one of those games that's really hard to explain, like how it works. But like when you sit down and you start going through it, it's really pretty straightforward it just has lots of pieces, but like I said, when you get the gist of it, it starts to make a lot more sense than just trying to explain it is, is difficult. So my problem this game was I didn't really have a huge overarching strategy, and I probably RP'd a bit too much because I was like the combat faction, so then I was like, oh, I'm going to be dicks to these people and take negative popularity. <laughs> and then, oh yeah, the game ended faster than I thought. I didn't get my popularity high enough. But going in, I wanted to try to focus on combat since my faction could get as many points from winning battles instead of the usual maximum of two. And and so I, I, I figured the other thing that I had going for me was on my production mat, mechs were the cheapest for me. That was the cheapest thing that I had. And I had metal as a resource to get to pretty quickly. And so I figured, okay, if I can make my mechs right away, I'll have those out there and then I can go and do combat. So that's kind of what I had as my strategy it it did not play out that way at all but that was my strategy going in and casey how did you approach the game um i was the rusviet faction so um my initial plan was to hopefully be the first to build a mech and uh we were playing the campaign version so i don't know if joey can probably go into more detail on that here in a second but i basically chose you get like eight different choices at the beginning of, of each battle or something. So I chose to get additional resources in the very beginning. And I chose iron so I would be able to build a, a mech really fast. And part of the Rusviet faction, uh, once you build a mech, one of the one of the powers of, of the mech is to travel from a village you control to the factory. Um, yeah. And if you're the first one to the factory, then you get a factory card, which you can use to gain additional resources or whatever during the game. So 
that was my goal was to be the first to the factory to get the first crack at the factory cards because if you're the first one there you also get the, usually the best card mm-hmm. in, in the entire deck so one um, thing that's interesting with Scythe, I'll jump in for one quick second here. One thing that's interesting is each of the factions is completely like locked off from the other ones at the beginning. There, you're basically walled off by a river, and you have to get resources and build a mech that has river walking in order to be able to move out of your starting space. So, with your faction, you're able to get that mech early, and that opened up a lot more freedom on the board for you. And that's, I think, it's pretty amazing skill just to be able to hop right to that factory. So, um. So it, it worked really well, especially because that campaign, and I think I made it to the factory in like the second turn. Yeah, it was like instant. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then also our, our special victory point for the, for this uh, scenario too, we also had a, um, a card where if you were the first, or not the first one, but if you made it to the factory before you had any upgrades, you would actually gain a victory point. So yep. I wanted to make sure I got there you know, before the upgrades, so I would have the best card and I would have an early lead for the victory point. Still didn't really work out for me in the end, though. (laughs) (laughs) So here's how you win at Scythe. I will hold the floor here. Do the exact opposite of Casey, basically. (laughs) I saw that objective card for the campaign, and I said, nope. (laughs) My strategy has been the same each of the last three times. It's like, it's a Zerg approach, basically. Like, it's complete isolationism. I focus on upgrades first. Like, I find out what the cheapest thing is for me to upgrade, and then I find the most effective way to get those resources, and I work on unlocking all the upgrades, which in turn makes everything else cheaper. And once everything else is cheaper, I can produce more workers. I can spend more turns moving. Uh, There's a mechanic in the game where if uh, you do one of the upgrades, you get a benefit anytime your neighbor does that thing, and that's how I got my power maxed. And that's how I got my popularity boosted. And that's how I drew a whole bunch of my combat cards, which my faction special ability allowed me to use one combat card as a resource. Mm-hmm. So I didn't even need as many resources as I typically yeah. would have. So I was basically, my turns consisted of trade, where I pay a gold to get two resources. And then I do my upgrade, which cost me two resources. And I'd move a cube and then I'd trade and get two more of something. And if I could use those resources to unlock another upgrade, I would do so and i just i didn't interact with any of you people and i just raced to victory basically <laughs> yeah it was kind of amazing like i was sitting there and i was looking at my area and i was like oh man i'm so close to getting my six and then like i looked at tom and i was like he's already there like yeah. I mean, it was yeah. kind of like you did you just came out of nowhere and like boom you had all six victory points yeah and it's so subtle because you're not attacking anyone you're not amassing yeah. these huge piles of resources you're not really pissing anyone off so like yep. i just sat there i was very efficient i'd get my two resources i'd spend my two resources i'd get two more resources i'd spend two resources and then like halfway through i'm like shit i should have been using these stupid combat cards for this and i'd have uh-huh. way more resources <laughs> well and that's always the that's the misconception that people always have with Scythe is because you have these miniatures of these really cool-looking mechs. They are so, you think, so cool-looking. You think this is a combat game. You think it's like, I'm just going to smash metal things into metal things, and that's what this game is about. But the best strategy is to avoid combat until you absolutely need to do it to get victory points. Yeah, I had four stars up on the board. You need six stars to trigger the end game. I could tell that I had way more money than anyone else. It wasn't close. My, I was in the top tier for the popularity, so I knew that I was going to get extra money, and those six stars, those are one of the endgame criteria, and you get more money for having more stars. So I looked for the easiest slim pickings of combats. I think I got a cheap one on Adam that he wasn't aware of. I had more power than anybody, so I knew that I could win a combat. I had a huge stack of combat cards. I had a couple fives, which is as high as they go, and I had seven power, so like, I knew I was basically guaranteed to win. Then on the second turn, you guys realize that, oh shit, 
Yeah. Tom's got five stars, and he's busting shit up with his mechs. Yeah. I would have loved to have beaten Pat to seal the victory, <laughs> but his faction had stupid minds, so I didn't quite... And I didn't have enough of a power lead on him that I knew that I could win the combat with mines, so I wound up attacking Joey in the factory, not realizing the factory was worth three more territories, which is yep. even more money at the end game. Yeah, that yeah. kind of hurt me. I needed, like, two more turns... To be able to get, because I, I had a plan to build my popularity up at least into that second band, and then to be able to get a couple more stars kind of all in the same process. So I had kind of this plan to enact, but then I quickly, because you were sitting right next to me, I quickly started to figure out, okay, Tom's going to end this faster than that shit. I'm screwed. And I, I finished with like the least uh, money at the end. And so the way the campaign works it's really the the game we played was basically the same as a normal game of scythe with two exceptions one exception is that we had one of the secret objectives was flipped up and that was an open objective that everybody could use to score a star and so it was just an extra spot along the top of the board the other thing is when you were the first person to put a star down in one of the different areas you got an influence token. So these little orange owl face tokens that you would use to vote on something at the end of the game. And we're not going to talk about what that is because we don't want to spoil what the actual option was. Uh, But those were really the only differences. And then the big thing is, is whatever money you earn, that goes as your wealth that you can use to spend on resources further down in the campaign. Um, You guys are so hosed in this campaign. Oh, no. I won't spoil what the choice is, but we did what I wanted because I had the most influence. (laughs) See, and and the thing is, is knowing who we were playing with, I could have swore everybody would have voted for the other option. That's true. But we all voted for the option I didn't expect, uh, which was the one that I voted for, too, because I thought it would be interesting. We shall see. The thing is, is even though it's a competitive game, Tom, if someone gets too big of a lead... It becomes very cooperative, very fast against the person who's in the lead. What are you guys going to do? I'm going to be riverlocked. You can't come get me. I'm just going to get my two resources. I'm going to upgrade. Like, it's going to be a race to see who can upgrade the most efficiently from now on. See, that's why I was afraid to talk about this game on this podcast because, like, I have a good thing going there, and I would have just enjoyed crushing you guys mercilessly again and again and again. But now none of us are going to move out of that starting area, and eventually, like, someone's going to need that combat. I'm like, well, I'm not walking into his four, Max. See, the thing is, so that's the problem I had. So my whole strategy was to try to do a lot of combat. The problem I ran into is that I needed combat cards because – I had, like, all the power in the world. That wasn't a problem. Like, I maximized that shit. The problem I had was I could not get combat cards. And the best way to get combat cards, in my opinion, is to do the enlist action and have that unlocked so that whenever somebody else enlists, so it would have been you or I think Adam was on my left, then I would get combat cards. The problem is, is I had no... I did not have the bag resource in my starting area i had it nowhere close i would have had to have knocked you out of your starting area to even get to that so i did not have that resource which made it really difficult and that was the most expensive uh option that i had to unlock in the game and so it was really tough for me to maximize that when i could just get a bunch of steel get a bunch of wood uh because that was what was available to me so then i was like oh, well i have folks on the mechs now and i'll try to get that later but by the time I could unlock that enlistment like everybody enlisted. And so there was no way to actually benefit off of that anymore. Uh, And then you guys had all the combat cards at that point. So then I was like, well, I can still try to do combats. I just got to pick and choose the right options. Uh, But then at that point, it was too late anyway. 
Um, you know what this conversation kind of reminds me of? It reminds me of the times we've played Deadwood. And my problem with Deadwood, Deadwood is a fun game too, but the way you succeed in Deadwood is to avoid combat, and I think that's the least fun way to play it. I don't. I think Scythe is similar, but I enjoy just upgrading my stuff, and Deadwood doesn't have any of that like tech tree stuff. But I just I see an interesting parallel between the two games. Yeah, I can it would see be that. fun to have more combat because the combat system is really fun. But uh, it just you know if you're gonna spend turns moving into position, spend resources battling someone else, like the in my opinion, those turns are better spent gathering more resources, yep. upgrading something. Yeah, Most of the time in this game, the combat comes at the end like you did just to finish off and get that last mm-hmm. victory point. And I, and I think the other, the other problem I had, and the thing that I, the thing that I really love about Scythe is that after every game, you have an idea, okay, this is what I did not do well enough at. And this is what I need to try next time to do better at that. And I think that's really cool with a game to be able to like pick that out and understand that. The thing that I always struggle with is maximizing my actions. So if I choose to do the top, I need to try to be able to do whatever's on the bottom of that as often as possible because otherwise you're wasting part of your turns. Yeah. And if everybody else isn't wasting part of their turns, they're getting ahead of you. And so I think that's like the really elegant thing about Scythe is just... It's really simple. You do the top action, you do the bottom action. Boom, it's the next person. Boom, it's the next person. And, and we saw that this time when we played, when all of us had played before. And it was cruising. It was nice. It, 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 it goes in a nice clip. I mean, and it was like, this is sweet because you can think about what you need to do. Sometimes what somebody else does might change your strategy a little bit, but usually it doesn't. And, and, and so, I don't know, it was just, it was a lot of fun this time. And even though I got pounded, I got dead last. I still had a lot of fun. I still think I have a chance at the campaign because I'm sure there's ways that I can capitalize on things moving forward in the future. I just got to try to find that. Yeah, I'd be pretty broken if you were out of it after because right. you lost the first one. <laughs> there, there's some games that are like that, though. <laughs> I played an Armada campaign, Star Wars Armada campaign once, where, yeah, it was rough trying to, like, after, like, getting pounded in the first game, like, it was hard after that. <laughs> I love Scythe. I think it's, mm-hmm. I mean, I. It's interesting talking about it. Like it just reminds me how much I love it, and I don't feel this way about Wingspan. Like I think Wingspan is probably a better game. It's a better designed game. There's a lot of things that are like good about Wingspan, but man, I love Scythe. Yeah. It is just such a sweet game. Yep. Yeah, I love it too. Um, it's. I think it's it's really the only game that I've seen where like there's so many different ways that you can actually go about obtaining victory, and some of the times like we made example already where our friend jake who i think the second time he played this game he thought he was getting his butt kicked and then somebody got six victory points well it was tom Tom, he said and then jake ended up winning by default he didn't even realize that he had (laughs) amassed enough popularity and amassed enough money uh, money Money, to to win the game and (laughs) it's kind of stupid but it's awesome at the same time (laughs) there's a game aspect that can be like that well and because part of that so the next game that we played, um, like we realized that if somebody just sort of sits back and does that, like if you go in like you did, you went in and you took a bunch of his resources in one turn. Oh man, and that he crushed them, him for that game. He left them just sitting there, and like I had uh, the lake popping mech, so like I could pop into a lake somewhere and pop out of a lake somewhere else. And he had just a huge stack of resources sitting somewhere, and I went and I took them. And then basically, I didn't need to gather resources the entire rest of the game because of the bounty he had. He was, I mean, he won the game before, but he was horribly efficient in that particular game because he just 
hoarded resources and yep. like resources do you no good if they're like on the board and can be taken like you need to spend that shit yeah so it's really about like it's really it's just like war it's finding the best intervention to get the most out of the resources you have to put into it right so it's the same type of thing you got to look at okay this is exactly what i need to do in order to maximize the disruption that i can cause to give myself more time to get the resources i need to win and so I think the more that we play, especially through the campaign, I think the more that's going to become apparent. I can't wait to see where the campaign goes. Yeah. I'm so excited to dive back in. You guys have any more thoughts on Scythe? No, not really. Um, I, we kind of touched on this before, but it was really funny the first time we pulled that out and everybody was like, oh, look at these sweet maps. <laughs> and everybody was kind of like, well, you don't really fight with them. Yep. You got to just carry your workers around the map with them. Like, what, what the heck? Yeah, it's, yeah oh, it's a great game. They also, they release a lot of neat things with it. One thing that you did that I appreciate, Burnsy, you upgraded the components for the game. Yeah. You had actual like metal coins for the money and mm-hmm. bigger tokens for the resources rather than just the little cardboard cutouts. Those are sweet. Yeah, like having the 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 steel that is hefty and feels like steel and the the oil barrels which are they look exact they're they're little oil oil barrels and they feel like they're hollow inside it's like i don't know i think it's really cool it adds to the game it adds to the aesthetic and and it Definitely. makes it feel it makes it feel more cool we spent 14 hours playing these four games and one other game. We played Dark Souls the card game as kind of an end cap for the night, but the bulk of our day was spent on Stonemire games. What are our takeaways on these games? I'll start with one. There is often a lot of visual input or visual stimuli to sort through at first. Like it can yes. be very overwhelming to just like look at them and take them in. Tapestry, I think, is especially yeah. egregious on this front. Yeah, I, there is a lot. And, and the thing is, is the art on all of the games is just freaking beautiful and and like the mechs look cool the characters look cool like i'm playing as wojtek the bear the famous polish bear like this is freaking awesome you know and so it, it, it can be a little bit at first to try to see through all of that and actually see the game that's there but i think once you get that it, it's so cool and it's so interactive and there's so much that you want to try uh, it, it, it is like the perfect sandbox of trying to figure those things out. Uh, I think all of his games kind of are like that, even though they each use different types of mechanics um, or, or little variations of the same types of mechanics. Uh, and I think that's, they're all so well-designed and they flow like into each other. Everything kind of works with each other. It's just really probably well play tested and well thought out. Yeah. I, it's same, same thoughts generally is that they are just beautiful games. Um, you know, a game like Viticulture, where I got my butt just <laughs> whooped. I have no interest in wine, but the game itself is so well designed and such, you know, a, a, just a cool aspect that I'd play it again, even though I, I really, the first time through, just couldn't wait for this round to be over because <laughs> I, I was getting worked so bad. But, um, and all of them are like that. You know, there's a little bit of learning curve, but once you grasp it and once you play it, they're just great games. Well done, Stonemaier. I agree. Another thing I think is interesting, four games, two dice. There are two dice in Tapestry. None of the other games use dice. One of his core tenets is that interesting choice is a more important part of a game than randomness. Yeah. Do we miss dice? I mean, we play games like Memoir 44 where it's all chucking dice and killing dudes. And I love Memoir Mm -hmm. 44, but I find that I don't really miss the randomness. Well, and... uh... 
I actually hate the randomness of the science track. You know, the, <laughs> with true. the one dice that you have, like I think yeah. it completely takes away from. Oh, there's three dice in tapestry. Yeah, yeah, I forgot the right. science. That's all right. So, but still, I mean, to, to your point, I mean, they're totally different games. You know, like there's times where yeah, you just want to get together with your friends. You want to chuck dice. You want to kill each other. You want to have a good time. But these games are just so much more involved. So much like I mean, just the, the design themselves is just beautiful, high quality pieces. Uh, they just keep you coming back for more. Yeah, and I, I think another game that that kind of glorifies that tenant, um, and it's from another designer that hates randomness in games, uh, is Gloomhaven, and the the fact that you can do all the things that you do with a hand of cards, and and how interactive that is to figure out what are the actions that I need to do, and what are the things that my cooperative teammates might be doing, and how is that going to interact together is it's just so interesting, and I think that's so much better, but. The magic of having a die and waiting, like is that, that's what's that's what makes D and D great. Is I'm going to try this crazy ass thing. The DM's not going to let it happen unless that one number rolls. And when that flips over to a twenty, like holy shit, it happened. Now, now how are we going to make this work? Like I think uh, there's a lot of fun to that, but in doses. Rolling a 20 is sweet. Yeah, rolling a 20 is great. But in Murps, you roll a uh, 100-sided die. You roll 2d10, and if you get 100, you actually get to roll again. And if you get 100 again, you get to roll again, and you add all that shit up. Casey once had the immaculate perception. He was, like, looking for bad guys or something, and he rolled, like, 230. It's good to be lucky. Uh, Adam also points out in the Facebook Live that uh, my comment with dice was incorrect. There are dice in Wingspan and in Charterstone. That is so, true. Yeah, so there's dice in all the games. So, you know, <laughs> strip that whole part of the conversation <laughs> from your memory. It's a good point, though. And like, But the randomness of the dice in in Wingspan makes sense because what food is available to, like, in a certain area would be random sometimes like, Oh, okay. Well, the berries are available now, you know, and there's fish that are shallow enough for me to catch. And and so I think as long as it's seated in how the game works, it makes sense. Also that, that does make a lot of sense. Stonemeyer games. We love them. I think I, Ah. I can safely speak for all three of us. Guys, I want to thank you both for the time you put into this show. You dedicate an entire day to playing games. You watched, videos of human fall flat for Christ's sakes. <laughs> Any closing thoughts before we move on to the interview with Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer games? No, uh, thank you for letting me do this. You know, uh, hopefully I'll be back again to talk about something else someday. And I, I really liked it. Thank yeah. you for, for letting me play games with you and, and, and being a part of this Tom Sidlachik OIO family. <laughs> yeah, you were thoroughly adequate. Nice job. <laughs> Even yeah. though I'm ugly and fat. <laughs> <laughs> Audio listeners, stick around for an exclusive interview with Jamie Stegmeyer from Stonemeyer Games. To everyone who watched on Facebook Live and commented over the last two hours, thank you so much. Adam Wilson, thanks for being a part of this gaming day with us and bringing your sweet resources. Awesome talking with all of you with the success of this Facebook Live and the new setup in my finally finished office. I think this is going to be the normal thing moving forward so guys thank you so much and uh stay tuned for an interview i am thrilled to be joined on outside is overrated by jamie stegmeyer jamie runs the day-to-day operations at stonemeyer games in st louis missouri he has a lifelong passion for playing and designing board games 
He has designed Viticulture, Euphoria, Scythe, and Charterstone. His eight crowdfunding campaigns have raised over $3.2 million. Welcome to the show, Jamie. Hey, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. It is our pleasure. If our fans would like to follow you online, they can connect with you on Facebook at facebook.com slash Jamie Stegmeyer. Your last name is spelled, well, your full name is spelled J-A-M-E-Y-S-T-E-G-M-A-I-E-R. And you're also at Jamie Stegmeyer on Twitter. Yeah, and actually, just to clarify that, um, I I have a Facebook rule that I don't friend people that I haven't actually met in real life. So if you want to follow me, the best way is to do it on Instagram or Twitter. On Facebook, if you want to be involved, be in contact or be involved, go to the Stillmeyer Games Facebook page. That's the, the place where I communicate with people who are interested in our games. Thank you for the clarification. I'd like to begin with a couple of questions from our supporters on Patreon. Uh, the first, kind of a lighthearted one, Patrick asks, what do you have against Dice? Yeah, I had to chuckle at this one in a little bit of confusion because I counted in over five of our games use dice. Euphoria is a dice work replacement game. Char- uh, Wingspan has food dice in it. Charterstone is named after the die in the game, the Charterstone die. And uh, and Milo Scythe has some dice in it too. So I actually have nothing against dice. I really, really love dice. I even have a, a top 10 games that include dice, a video that I put up a few months ago. <laughs> so I'm not, maybe he was thinking of the, the combat in Scythe, which doesn't have dice. And uh, the reason that doesn't have dice is that I, I really like um, combat where uh, you you make a strategic decision that impacts the combat itself rather than leaving it to the randomness of dice. There is some great combat in games that use dice, but uh, I tested a bunch of different methods for Scythe and I found that the card system and the wheel where you just choose your power worked a lot better. I think the combat system in Scythe is amazing. It's uh, it's funny that Patrick asked this. I know that he played four of your games to get ready for the show with us. So, uh... Oh, really? <laughs> well, play Euphoria, Patrick. You'll see why I love dice. <laughs> uh, next, Billy asks, what board game would you recommend for somebody who has never gotten into them but is looking to start? Yeah, I like this question a lot. And I'll name, I'll name two. One competitive, one cooperative. I think cooperative games are great to bring people into the hobby because you can teach the rules as you go. You can really help them out a lot. And uh, one cooperative game that I love is uh, Forbidden Desert. I think it's maybe a step over Gateway, but it, because it's cooperative, it doesn't matter all that much. You can, it's, it's very easy to, to get someone into a game of Forbidden Desert. And from the competitive side, I really love Downforce as a Gateway game. Uh, Downforce is a racing game where, you, where there's a lot of interesting player interactions and a very simple uh, action system. You just play a card on your turn and move all the cards, all the cars corresponding to that card. Have you played Downforce? I have not played Downforce. I'm yeah. familiar with Forbidden Desert. That's one of my wife and my favorite games because we play a lot of cooperative oh, cool. things together. But Downforce yeah. is a new one for me. It's a lot of fun. Well, jumping from our Patreon supporters into current events, there's a lot going on in the world right now. Just wanted to touch on a couple of the big issues. You wrote about the effect the pandemic is having on Stonemeyer Games on your company blog in May. Has much changed in the months since you posted that article? Um, what has changed? Uh, pretty much everything in the article is still accurate. It, the article kind of talks about how certain things that might affect, impact some publishers don't impact us because we, for example, don't have we don't rely on conventions all that much to to market our games or to sell games. So, in a in a year without conventions, that hasn't impacted us all that much. On on the other hand, it, it it's been it, and also I like I work from home, and so a lot of people have to work from home right now. I'm used to that. That's how I've always worked as long as I've run some of our games. So that hasn't changed all that much. Uh, the the biggest variable for me that I am uh, 
that I talked about in the blog but hasn't happened yet is what our holiday sales will look like. I think a lot of uh, the industry relies pretty heavily on holiday sales. It's a big sales period for for us, for retailers, for distributors. And so um, if uh, I think we're going to see a long-term economic impact of this pandemic, and it might be really felt strongly during the holiday season. So that's the, the biggest variable for me as we move forward. And you touched on this with that answer. Conventions have a minimal impact on Stonemaier games, but what do you? How do you see the cancellation of all those events impacting the industry as a whole? Well, I think part of it is that publishers who rely heavily on conventions are, are might hurt for a little bit, but it also might be a great time for those publishers to find other ways to connect with their audiences and to build communities. So there could be some some great positive impacts that come out of it. My biggest concern really is that people will be scared away from conventions in the long term, even after it's safe to do so according to the, the medical community. I think there will probably become a, come a time where, where it is safe to do it, but people might still be concerned about doing so. And so that might have a, a long-term impact on on those publishers and just uh, welcoming new people into the hobby, because I think conventions are a, a decent time to do that. Stonemaier Games recently issued a strong Black Lives Matter statement and declaration of action. Can you tell us yeah. about some of the initiatives that are included in that program and how are they going? Yeah. Um, it's uh, yeah. So, we, like you said, we, we issued this declaration of action, um, which we took a little while to put it together because we wanted to to make a statement that wasn't just about this moment. And this moment is very important, but we didn't want to make a, a temporary statement. We wanted to hopefully make a lasting impact and use our reach and our resources to do so. And so, some of the things that we mentioned in the article are, are they're, they're basically things where we, instead of passively sitting back and being inclusive. We, we've always tried to foster an inclusive community. I think that's really important. Instead of just doing that, we wanted to actively pursue uh, basically the uplifting of um, a black, indigenous, and people of color. And so some of the things we mentioned in the statement are one, actively reaching out to uh, BIPOC, this is the acronym, black, black, indigenous, and people of color, actively reaching out to BIPOC uh, creators, content creators, and reviewers to uh, to make sure we're helping them in any way to, to so that they uh, can be more familiar faces in the industry. And so I've, I've reached out to a ton of, of, of people who fit that description over the last few weeks. And uh, I, I bought a few, I bought laptops for a few of them. I've sent them subscriptions to Zoom Pro, just a, a fair amount of like financial feedback, but also some advice and things like that, whatever they need at this time. Sometimes it's just sharing a video. Some of these creators don't need more equipment. They, they, they need more of an audience, so things like that. So that's been part of it. I'm also trying. I've been working with some organizations who want uh, who play games with uh, a lot of kids, uh, BIPOC kids, basically, and they need game donations. So I've donated a lot of games to them. And uh, one thing I haven't done yet, but I'm looking forward to, is some um, uh, helping Kickstarter creators, BIPOC Kickstarter creators, who need some personal advice and feedback. That's something that I usually don't spend my time on because I spend all my time running my company. Um, I don't usually do personal consultations and, and advice like that, but I thought I'd be a little bit more active here and, and, and take a step forward to do that for, for creators who, who really need that advice before they launch and need that personal touch. I think that's awesome. Congratulations on the efforts you guys are making. That's a really cool initiative. Thanks. Moving on to a much lighter series of topics, we played four of your games for the bulk of this podcast, and I'd love oh, cool. to dive in deep with you on them. Yeah, yeah. We played Wingspan, Vita Culture, Tapestry, and Scythe. Can we spend a couple minutes talking about each of these games? I'd like to start if you have an anecdote or a lesson that you learned from each of these games. 
Well, Viticulture was the first game that I designed for the purpose of publishing it. And one big thing, one major thing I learned from Viticulture was the value of blind playtesting, which is when you, well, the way I do it now is I put together digital files for a game and I send it out to people around the world to learn from the rules. They, they print and cut out the pieces and the cards and the board and they play it at home and they give me feedback on the gameplay about the balance, how intuitive the game is, how fun it is. And I really didn't know how important that was with Viticulture. I did a little bit, but not nearly to the extent that we do now. So I learned that firsthand with Viticulture. And if we can dive yeah. in on the playtesting for just a minute, you had an yeah. interesting post on your blog about sending 10 copies out on your first round of blind playtesting and how that was not the ideal way of approaching it. How do you approach blind playtesting mm -hmm. now? How do you find these players and what is kind of the timeline for getting feedback? We, we've been fortunate at Stonemeyer Games that, uh, that we have a, a group of people called the Stonemeyer Ambassadors. So they're people who have come to our website, ha have basically signed up as a volunteer to help us in some way. So they're passionate about Stonemeyer Games, maybe just one of our games, maybe several games, and they want to help out in some way. And a small number of them become playtesters uh, based on uh, their interest in it and a test that they take to determine if they are going to be a good playtester. And I... It, for any game, uh, I usually over between three and five rounds or waves of blind playtesting, I send out these digital files. So I send them out, I gather feedback on a Google form from all these different playtesters. Usually it's between like five and 10 different playtest groups that submit uh, data and anecdotes about what they experience while playtesting it. And then I take that data, I fix up the game, I make the game better, hopefully based on that, that feedback, and then I playtest it with my, by myself, and then I send it out for a new wave of blind playtesting. And I repeat that process until the game is as fun and balanced and intuitive as I think it needs to be. That is so interesting. Uh, moving yeah. on from Viticulture, do you want to talk about Wingspan next? Yeah, so Wingspan is, uh, it's, it's now our best-selling game. Uh, this is the one game on your list that I am not the designer of. Elizabeth Hargrave is the designer, and I had a great time working with her as, as the developer of the game. And I guess one little anecdote, uh, Really, the, my main contribution to the game was uh, is the player mat system. Elizabeth had designed all these birds, and we had tried out different action systems and different different uh, different kind of engine building systems. I wanted some sort of progression in the game, and uh, I, I suggested to her that we start putting birds on a mat, and uh, the, the birds themselves would some of them would activate for abilities, kind of like how they ended up doing. And by placing birds in different habitats, you would improve your abilities for each of those habitats, the core abilities. Uh, this was inspired by terraforming Mars. A lot of wingspan is, and I, I just love that. I love the sense of progression in any game. You probably see that in any Stomar game. There's a sense of progression from the beginning to the end. And so I was I was really excited to uh, give Elizabeth a little bit of a spark there to add that that player mat to the system. It worked out beautifully. How does that designer-developer yeah. relationship develop? How did Wingspan become a Stonemeyer game? Elizabeth pitched the game to us. I think it started with a submission form on our website, and then it happened to align well with a Gen Con 2016, I think, um, where we met up with her. We, we hear a lot of pitches when we, whenever we go to Gen Con, and her, she had a 30-minute pitch, which was enough time at that time to play through a full game of Wingspan, um, which was a much shorter, lighter game at the time. It had a different name to it too, but I, I knew a that I really wanted to work with her because she she was really sharp and just uh, I really liked the way that she responded to feedback, and the the number of birds she had designed that had mechanisms that were uniquely tied to each individual bird was amazing. I, I'm amazed by anyone who can design that many cards, and so we we pretty much spent that eight, next 18 months working together where she would send me a version of the game I would play test it a few times. 
offer some feedback about what I, th feedback questions, things that I thought needed to evolve and change a little bit. And then she would take it usually for around a few weeks to a month and try a bunch of stuff. She's really great at play testing with different people in different groups um, until we got the game to a place where we thought it was ready for blind play testing. And that, it took a while, but, uh, but I think it was worth the process. It turned out amazing. Yeah. Did, did the theme give you any pause? Anytime I talk about Wingspan mm -hmm. with any of my hardcore gaming friends, they say birds? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was never in doubt that I wanted to publish Wingspan as a bird-themed game. I was worried, and somewhat notoriously at this point, about uh, how many people would be willing to give the game a try at first, especially among hobby gamers. And so... I infamously, at this point, I printed only 10,000 units in the first print run, which in hindsight seems like a terrible decision. But at the time, I didn't know if we were even going to sell 10,000 units, so or that the people would give it a try. And so the, the first print run was was much lower than it needed to be because uh, it was reviewed very well. And I think those re those early reviews gave hobby gamers uh, kind of an in. They were like, oh, okay. I'll try it despite the theme, and many of them have ended up loving it. And we've actually ended up bringing a ton of birders. I didn't even realize how many people love just love birds, and a lot of those birders have joined the gaming community as a result of the game. That is awesome. It's almost akin to your thinking with Vita Culture, wasn't it? Having a topic that anyone can relate to with birds versus wine. That's exactly right. Yeah, that, that was that was why I picked the theme for Viticulture. I'm not even a huge wine lover myself, but I wanted to pick a theme that, that I thought would appeal to, to gamers and non-gamers alike. Earlier in the show, we did rank our five favorite Stonemaier games, and Wingspan came out on top. Great. That's it, yeah. Moving on from Wingspan, what is something you learned from Tapestry? Tapestry, yeah. Um, there was a, a pivotal moment in Tapestry where some of the early playtests were going really well, but then I sat down with uh, a few friends. So I was playtesting it mostly with my co-founder, Alan, and we brought in a few friends to play it, and they looked at the board, and they were just like, I don't know what to do. There's too much here. And at the time, I was trying to implement eight different tech trees on the same board, and oh it was a lot of information. Yeah. And so in the final version of Tapestry, you've seen that there are four tracks uh, but they're linear tracks, and at any given time, you only have the choice between four different actions, uh, one on each track, the next action on each track. But on this huge tech tree system, there were a ton of actions to choose from, way too many. And what I realized, there was this moment where I realized I, I, that even though there were all those actions, the choices really weren't all that different, and that I could slim each of these branching paths down to a linear path and make it a lot more intuitive and have a better sense of progression and have more meaningful decisions by, by streamlining that a little bit. So while I did, I love the, the idea of tech trees, especially in digital civilization games, I think it was, uh, it's much easier to start playing and to make decisions in a game when you only have a, a few decisions rather than 70 decisions. Sure. Yeah. And then what I consider the big one, Scythe. What <laughs> is something you learned uh, yeah. from Scythe? Well, we talked about combat a little bit earlier, so I won't do combat. What did I learn from Scythe? Well, yeah, okay, so this is something related to my, my company as a whole, but I learned that fan-submitted content can be more than just fan-made fan expansions and modules. And what I'm referring to is that uh, the designer of the Wind Gambit, a guy named Kai Stark, was a complete stranger to me, and he joined the Scythe Facebook group, was active there, and then one day he posted that he had designed an expansion for Scythe that used airships. 
Um, each player had their own airship. I believe that the original version was that each player had their own airship. And he not only posted this idea, but he posted a full rulebook and playtesting results. He had actively actually made this thing and had played it with friends. And I, it, I kind of assumed that I would just be the designer for all the side expansions. But then I saw that and I was like, wow, this is, this is a really cool idea. It needs some work. I want to work with Kai to figure this out. But it has a really solid foundation. And it sparked this string of events with, uh, with Stillmeyer Games where fans created something for one of our games, including the Wind Gambit, including the Rise of Fenris, My Little Scythe, and probably some other examples I'm not even thinking of, and that uh, they became real published products. Uh, so it, it taught me to listen to fans in a new way because of the amount of creativity that people put into Scythe and other games. It's amazing the amount of passion and effort people will put into a project that they're passionate about. It's yeah, looking at the base game you created with Scythe and to see how it's grown is amazing. Yeah. Out of those four games, which one is your personal favorite to play? Hmm. Well, I've been in self-isolation with, with my girlfriend for the last few months, so my gaming habits have narrowed down to two-player games quite a bit, or games that I can play online, but a lot of two-player games. And so I'll, I'll answer that from the perspective of what is my favorite two-player game of those to play. And that's actually tough, because we love Wingspan, absolutely. Uh, we just had a great game of Tapestry this past weekend, and we played Viticulture in Tuscany the weekend before that, and also had a great time with that. Scythe, we, I don't know if we would play Scythe two-player all that much. It, it is designed completely for two-player. It works fine two-player, uh, but... We haven't gotten that to the table two players, so I won't, I won't say that. I'll say Wingspan. We've we've had a blast playing Wingspan together, so I'll, I'll put that at the top of the list. Is it still fun and magical to play games that you've had such an intimate relationship with, or when you have time <laughs> to play games, would you rather play something that someone else created, a new experience for you? I do. I, I try to play a lot of games from other designers and other publishers because I, I love, I don't know, I love playing games in general, but I also love learning from new designs and so I do a lot of that, I, but it is, there's something, it's like uh, going to a restaurant that you haven't been to in a while, but you really love that restaurant. You already know you love it. You know what you're going to order, and you may not go there all that often, but when you do, it feels like home. That's how it feels for me to go back to one of my games and play. If someone suggests it, if, if they suggest that they want to play one of my games, I'm always in for it, and I have a good time, especially if I don't have to teach it. I, I'm happy to teach one of our games, but it is nice to just sit down and play, especially with someone who can uh, can compete and have deep strategy while I'm playing as well. So Vita Culture basically started with a successful Kickstarter campaign. What was yeah. your life like before that campaign? How have things changed now that Stonemeyer Games has launched a number of successful Kickstarter campaigns? Well, nothing really existed before Viticulture in terms of Stonemaier Games. The company, I, I count the, mo the moment the company came into existence was the moment that Viticulture funded on Kickstarter. If it had not, well, technically it did have the company before then. If it had not funded, probably nothing would have happened. That's kind of the great thing about Kickstarter. If you, you can put some resources into it, but if it doesn't work out, that's okay. You don't, you can go a different direction. But it did work out. Um, and I, I, I had a full-time job at the time. I continued working that full-time job through the fulfillment for the Euphoria Kickstarter campaign. And that's when I knew that I had uh, enough resources to pretty much make it a year working full-time uh, by uh, running, just running the company in case things just didn't go well after that. But it was pretty soon after that that we had the Viticulture Tuscany Kickstarter campaign, which did very well, especially for its time. And, uh, and I had a pretty solid foundation to move forward and stay full-time. So I've been running the company full-time by myself for many years. And then this January, I hired 
uh, our first other full-time employee, Joe, who is our director of, op- uh, director of communications. One of the things you did to promote Viticulture was an event called Games and Pie. Do you still do things like this, or is that uh, kind of small time for you now? Games and Pie? I don't even know if I remember what Games and Pie is. Oh, you wrote about but it on it, your blog. It was at a local game store. Yeah. You, uh, I think you were having people try out Viticulture to get some feedback on it, and you had pie. Really? Okay, yeah, that, that's a way back. Um, I don't remember doing that, but I did at the time. I, I, I went to a bunch of different local game stores and play tested there. Uh, the game stores were very gracious to, to let us do that. I don't remember the pie part at all, but, but I, I like that there's, I'll have to go back and find that blog post. What are a couple of games that have influenced your design style, and what did you either enjoy or admire about them? Yeah, so, yeah, there's quite a few. One that has influenced several of our games is Terra Mystica. Have you played Terra Mystica? I have not. Yeah, Terra Mystica is a wonderful, pretty heavy Euro game that influenced Scythe and uh, and Tapestry quite a bit. It uses a system that you've probably seen in other games where you are pulling things off your player map, putting them on the board, and the things that are exposed, the icons that are exposed by you putting those things on the board uh, gives you better income or better ongoing, um, it improves your actions on an ongoing basis. So that's influenced a lot of my games. What else? Uh, Tapestry. What, uh, Tapestry was influenced at least partially by A Feast for Odin, which is a, a, an even heavier Euro game that does actually have like 61 different action spaces, worker placement action spaces. So I love that idea of having all those actions, but I wanted to distill it, like I talked about earlier, into a, a more streamlined action system in, in Tapestry. And uh, I mentioned Wingspan. Wingspan did have a lot of influence in, in Terraforming Mars. Those are all heavier games, but I do play a lot of lighter games too, because I think I especially love lighter games that uh, that offer a ton of replayability and are, are help to onboard people into the game very easily. I love a game that is easy to learn, easy to teach, but uh, but offers a lot of complexity and interesting strategic decisions. Do you have any games like that in your collection that that are just you you know this is very easy to teach. I never forget the rules for it, but um, there's always a lot of meeting decisions and interesting decisions in those games. For my core group of friends, it's always Battlestar Galactica. We love that uh, yeah. game. Uh, I have the role of villain amongst my friend group, so they, no matter <laughs> what happens, they always think that I'm the hidden traitor, the Cylon, and I always get locked in the brig, whether I'm human or a Cylon, and it's been exceptionally frustrating. But that is probably our go-to <laughs> game. That, um, that's great. We like those hidden traitor games, that's, and that's probably our favorite of that mold. Yeah. Uh, thinking about other designers, have you noticed any other designers borrowing mechanics that you came up with? Are there any mechanics that you think more people should adopt? Yeah, I actually I did a video about this recently. There, I named my favorite mechanisms in each of our games, and in a in the light of I want other people to use these mechanisms for other things. Um, one from Viticulture is the Grande Worker. I love the Grande Worker in Viticulture because it, it gives you Viticulture is a very tight worker placement game, but the Grande Worker opens things up. It gives you that one out to take an action even after it's already blocked. I'm sure that has made its way into other games whether it's influenced by viticulture or not. But that is a worker placement thing that I really, really enjoy. I'd love to see the tapestry system in another game. I, I like the way those tracks work. I like that you are narrowed down to those those only four actions on a turn, even though each track has 12 spaces. And so you can see, you can visually see this sense of progression and what you might move towards, what you have given up by doing other things, but you only have four actions at a time. And I also really love Wingspan's mat. We talked about that earlier. I, I would 
while engine building has made itself into a number of games, I love the, not randomness of the cards, but I love the variability of the cards. So they're adding a completely different engine every game, but you also have this static thing that, that doesn't change. And that combination of a static progression plus variable progression is very satisfying to me. So I'd love to see other games use almost that exact same system. I think that player map could be used in very different games that uh, that that want that sense of progression and that are card driven. Is there one that you can think of that, that one mechanism in one of our games that you really like that you'd like to see in other games? The Grande Worker is one that easily really? jumps to yeah. mind. Being able to trump or make sure that you can get that one crucial action that you need, especially in a game that's where your activities are so tightly aligned. You have to be so coordinated with all your efforts to be a contender at the end. I I love the Grande Worker. Do you have any interest in working with different licenses? Like, if you could design a game with any license to any intellectual property in the world, what would you jump on? One that I've I've talked about for a few years now that I would I would love to publish a game in this world. And I'm not sure how well known it is at this point, but uh, it's a series of novels called the Red Rising, originally trilogy, Red Rising trilogy. Now there's five books in the series, and it's just a I. I Every now and then I read a book and I'm just enamored by the world and the characters and the, the the themes and I can almost see a game in that world as I'm reading it or as I'm watching a movie. It happens more often in books for me, but I, it's happened a few times for movies. And so it's not a huge IP, but it's also an IP that I love so much that I want to I want to expose it to more people in the gaming community. So that's one that I've thought about and talked about for years and what I would, would love to, to bring to life someday. Is there one IP that, that you love that you would love for there to be a game in that IP? A Song of Ice and Fire jumps to mind. I know that there is a big Game of Thrones board game, and I've dumped uh, yeah. a 10-hour play session into that game. I just didn't think it was a great game. I would love a great, tight game in George R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones universe. <laughs> uh, have you ever had to walk away from a project you were passionate about because it just wasn't good enough for primetime or had to put it on the shelf for some other reason? We actually had this happen last year. Yeah, we, I, uh, I was working on a project with, with some other designers um, for Stillmire Games, and it, it got to a point, we worked so hard on it, we went through completely different versions of the game. Like, usually through playtesting, we take the same game, and it, the, the core of the game doesn't change all that much, but then we, we tweak little things here and there. But we changed the core game multiple times, and we just could not get it to work. And this is a game, this was going to be our, our other release. We only had one release this year. It was going to be our other release for 2020. And I, it got to the point where I realized, okay, we could publish this game and it will look beautiful and it will be perfectly fine. Or we can start over from, from scratch and use the art that we have. We've already invested heavily in the art for this game, but we can use the art, keep the theme, and completely start over from scratch with the mechanisms with no restrictions. Uh, I had kind of given the designer some restrictions, some things that I wanted in the game. Um, and that's probably the first time that we've done that as a company, gotten that far in, in games development and said, nope, we're starting over. So, uh, yeah, unfortunately that has happened. It ha- usually it happens a lot earlier in the process where I'm, you know, two days in the design, I'm like, okay, this isn't, this already exists or it's not good enough, it's not innovative enough, I'm, not, I'm just not excited about it. But this is the first time that we've spent over a year working on a game and said, it's not ready, let's start over. Well, I hope that it works out and turns into a great title <laughs> for you guys. <laughs> We are Thanks. just about out of time. I'd like to ask you two more questions here. The first, you, you write frequent blog posts and you've published a book about crowdfunding on Kickstarter. Why is it important for you to empower your fellow creators? I like the word. I like to use the word empower there because that it feels really good to me to to do that to empower other creators to to create the things that they believe in and they they want to share with the world. I would say the why behind it is because. 
that resource wasn't there for me when I when I needed it. I think when I was set out to to launch Viticulture on Kickstarter, at the time there were very few resources that, online in particular about how to run a crowdfunding campaign, how to research it, how to how to increase your chances of success on a very specific level, uh, starting from when you when you decide you want to make a project to when you're done fulfilling the project. And so I I I wanted to put that information out there. I, I wanted for, for other creators to not have to make the mistakes that I had to make firsthand. And I continue to make mistakes to this day. I'll continue to make them in the future and I'll continue to write about them so other people don't have to make those same mistakes. And part of it, I think, is my love for the board game hobby in particular. My blog is for any type of creator, but I really love the board game community and industry. And I'd rather lift up my fellow creators than, than, uh, than ignore them or, or put them down. And to talk about your blog for just a moment, the blog that you keep on StoneMeyerGames.com is just incredible. It is such a wealth of information on your experience going through the Kickstarter campaigns to game design. Like I had just a wonderful time diving into that to prepare for this interview, and I would highly recommend the reading for anyone that has an interest in board gaming, the business of board gaming and crowdfunding and just the entire industry. Thank you. The last question I have for you is, what is the most common question you get from aspiring game designers? You know, it's one that I might write a blog entry about soon. I've dabbled, I've touched upon the topic, but uh, a question I hear a lot is, um, should I be worried about someone stealing my idea? Which I think is a very, I've asked that question before myself. It's a very human question. We have an idea that's special to us, and it's our instinct to protect that idea. But my answer when I hear that, is it okay if I answer the question too, or do you just want another question? No, absolutely. Yeah. My short answer, I need to kind of process it in writing, but my short answer is that uh, a couple different things. One, any idea that you have or that I have is way more important to me than to anyone else. I think we get caught up in our own ideas. We put, we highly value them way more than anyone else. So I think I say that as kind of reassurement to, as a reassuring thing to people that, that you, you might think your idea is the most special thing in the world, but most other people don't. They are caught up in their own ideas. Two, I think execution matters so much more than an idea. There are plenty of great game ideas out there, but what matters is the people who decide to put a lot of time and energy into actually bringing them to life. That's the bulk of the work. The idea is just the very, very starting point. And the, the third part is uh, I often encourage creators to put their idea out there rather than holding it close to themselves. Uh, because if they share it with other people, then they can get feedback from other people about that idea. Maybe the idea already, excuse me, already exists. And so they can find out right up front, okay, oh, Ticket to Ride already exists. I don't need to spend the next year of my life designing Ticket to Ride because it's already out there. I can just go buy it and play it. Or they can find out that something similar exists, but um, that they can they can learn from what's out there already. And they can, in, in sharing it, they're essentially protecting the idea. They're claiming it as their own. Whereas you've, if you only keep it to yourself and your head are on paper, and later on someone actually does steal it and executes not just the idea, but the whole concept, you don't have a paper trail, but if you've shared it very publicly for a long time, then people could say, oh, I, I know that was that was Tom's idea. Tom talked about it back in 2018. He's been talking about it for years. Uh, he's been working on it for years. How could someone else take take Tom's files and publish them as his own? So uh, that's that's the, the kind of the framework I'm working for for this blog post about that topic, but I do get asked that question quite a bit. That is very interesting. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for your time today. We really appreciate speaking with you. We've had just a blast getting ready for this episode of Outside is Overrated and playing the Stonemeyer games. Once again, if people want to follow you, they can follow you on Twitter and Instagram at Jamie Stegmeyer. It's J-A-M-E-Y-S-T-E-G-M-A-I-E-R. 
You also have a wealth of resources on StoneMeyerGames.com, including uh, different resources to become an ambassador for StoneMeyer Games, to uh, purchase your games from the web store, and it's just been great having this time with you and playing your games and learning more about them. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you as well, Tom. I really appreciate this. And thank you to everyone for listening to Outside is Overrated. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. Next month, Phoenix and Billy will be joining me for a discussion of Guy Ritchie films, including a deep dive on his newest film, The Gentleman. If you have thoughts you'd like to share on his films, be sure to share them at overratedpod at gmail.com. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids. Do you have eye problems, Tom? I mean, I zoomed way in because I thought you guys would be looking at this, too. (laughs) With that, let's start the show. I'm Tom. This is my co-host, The Dick, and here's Casey. The end. Everybody go home. (laughs) In Vita Culture, each player has just inherited, uh, funny typo in my show notes, just inhabited, a pre-modern vineyard. Oh, my God. Well, that's, I mean, inhabited. You know, that's similar. Yeah, yeah. Another special treat for the Facebook Live fans. I'm going to read that whole thing again. (laughs) Next up, we're going to talk about Vita Culture, which takes you through the rough and tumble world of Tuscan winemaking. In Vita Culture, each player has just inhabited... (laughs) I mean, you want to change it? You may just want to, like, strike that through on your thing here, since it's right on there on the computer. (laughs) Talking hard... I'm so good at reading. (laughs) All right, Ron, you got it this time. (laughs) Dunham chimes in. Casey has too much of a radio face. (laughs) Oh, man. And Jessica reminds us that, yes, she is obligated. (laughs) (laughs) So bringing our discussion back to Stonemaier Games. I'm glad you're here, Casey. Thanks, Joey. (laughs) I'm going to take my shirt off. (laughs) Oh, normally we don't just, like, stall out in the middle of a show like this, but, uh, Yeah, it works. Yeah. And that's usually his move, to take a shirt off. Well, usually I like to start with my pants, because, like, audio podcasts, you want to be, like, shirted, shirted and above. Shirted it? Shirted? Is that, like, turd dick? <laughs> shirted it and shirted it. Shirted in my pants, so that's why I'm pantsless. <laughs> Off the rails. Your brother requests that you keep your shirt on. Oh, Corey's on here too? What's up, Corey? <laughs> God, I hope I can do this this time. Bringing our discussion back to Stonemeyer Games. <clears throat> I don't know why I think I can clear my throat. <clears> throat> ah! Boom! Transition! I gotta make a pee!